I said to myself, wouldn't it be fantastic if I could own the Twin Towers? We got very, very lucky. The governor of New York, George Pataki, decided one day that maybe it would be good to privatize the ownership of the World Trade Center. So I got a call from the governor's office and they said, would you ever consider owning the World Trade Center? It was very, very good for the family. And I had an obligation to collect the insurance proceeds from the policies. A new governor was just elected, Elliot Spitzer, an old friend who I knew well. And I said, Elliot, if you don't help me, I'll never collect from the insurance companies. And guess what? He listened and he said, you know what? You're entitled. Great. Welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Hollerbach. This is episode three, four, five with one of my oldest friends, Damien Bostia. Hello, sir. So, uh, boy, we go back a ways. Um, we do. Grade school. Middle school. Grade school, even. Grade everything. school. Prime, yeah. Yeah. Prior to me moving in the area. And then, um, you know, we would hang out after. I remember you had these fun, like, wooden swords, and we would beat the shit out of each other with wooden swords, like yeah. fencing. Good times. And then uh, we were in German class together in high school. Freshman. And, uh I showed you, like, I sought you out in 2020 after I finished my stand-up specials. I drove to your house in Jersey, yeah. and, uh, you know, we watched my dirty stand-up specials. Yeah. And then your our lives departed from there. You went to you Delaware. You think that's where, the, where it broke? <laughs> or that's where we, we moved in different directions? We were just at a crossroads. Yeah. I think, no, no, no. I'm saying not like we were on the same career path. I'm saying both of our lives took a... Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, 2000 uh, high school graduation onward. We went a, a little bit different, but kept in touch. Yeah, well, we were both living in Jersey, for example, and then we hung out, and then you promptly moved to Delaware, and I moved to Austin, Texas. Yes, I think there were some um, other moves in the middle. I, I was living in Texas for a while before you were, so you're just copying me. Um, that's true. And then, you know, other places abroad, probably a couple overseas trips in between the two. Um, you know, we were even considering, I was considering for a minute being your roommate in Delaware. You made me yeah. an offer. And instead I, uh, moved in with a crackhead who called the cops on me. That was, uh, so maybe. Yeah. Was, so have you made any other great life decisions recently or. <laughs> um, brought a girl home from sixth street. She broke my Ikea mattress, dude. I got a low self-esteem. We, we don't have to talk about that. I, you know, you have to go through Ikea looking for like a, a wordle, like a part to fix your bed frame. Yes. That's when you know you've made a bad decision. Um, but I mean, uh, he's on the rise. <laughs> I saw you on the Teletubes and um, Awkward, you were going yeah. on missions to the Ukraine teaching marksmanship. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, it would have been better to be a roommate with this crazy marksman person than like a crack. Like you're both crazy, but maybe would have been more stable. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty well adjusted. I just make a. Uh some unorthodox decisions yeah so i also got charges pendings we both got yeah NBAs. yeah um, was it aggravated assault can we talk about that i don't want to talk about it. um <laughs> look we have that's my boundary okay 
That's my boundary. Yeah, when you get crocodile. I'll just say this. When you get between someone and crack cocaine, sometimes they get super heated and literally call the cops on you. And it's like a weird move for druggies to bring the police. But hey, it's like that all or nothing fight or flight. I have to apparently I have to get meth right now. So let's call the cops on this guy. Um, So you went from the Air Force to military contract work to chemistry. Um, So can you just kind of give a little timeline of your background before I get into this next Uh, college? And then uh, I did concurrent with college. I did the uh, the end part of my military career was overlapping with college, Uh, graduated, became a chemist and uh, pretty much once a year would go overseas for private military contracting. So go over, you know, Iraq, Syria, Philippines, fun places, Ukraine, things like that uh, in my off hours and with my vacation time from the lab. So do you get a little stir crazy in the lab? You don't, you know, I imagine you don't feel as activated um, going around being a G.I. Joe, you know? Uh, Yeah, I mean, the lab is definitely a much more contained, controlled atmosphere and not nearly as interesting or exciting. But, you know, it's tedious, which has its good parts and bad parts. You know, like the repetition offers some security, but also it's not the most exciting job in the world. Are there some non-player characters in your office? Of course. I mean, you just get those people who are just like there to sort of like move the plot devices along. But, but, uh, you know, it'll happen. But there's a lot of people who are not maybe the most socially well adjusted, but you know, such as any STEM field, chemistry, biology, you know, engineers. So you do get those. Uh, so your colleagues aren't going to no. the none of them have combat experience. Yeah, you know, surprisingly. But uh yeah, none of them. Uh very few. There's like one guy, I think he was in the National Guard, but never did anything, you know, insofar as combat. And then, uh, but nobody has done anything too exciting outside of work. Um, so I can see this. It's like you have this background of all this adventure, explosions, you know, run around. Hey, I got them with the gun, you know. And then it's like back to the lab, and then you're just watching chemicals and beakers and. I, yeah, things. I do do titrations and stuff. So I mean, sometimes it gets pretty exciting. But uh, what's for the a titration? Most part, just it's it's filtering chemicals so yeah th- there'll be things where you just do very very precise um uh recoveries of different chemicals that you need to get in ratio with each other but yeah just standard lab technique stuff but that's about the uh the upward end of the excitement of the job but so yes there's there's a pretty big difference between the two so you know we don't contact each other too often but when i made a special i go out to see you because i'm like yo check this out this is pretty cool yeah it was cool I, I don't hear from you for six months i get a text out of the blue hey it's your buddy i'm on the teletubes and i hear you say this on nightline okay. this is the sound of war the sound of defiance this is what it sounds like to fight for your life. This is probably the most defined line between good and evil and right and wrong. Ukraine is a country under siege. It's military and ordinary citizens alike battling back Russian forces for more than a month. So that's very interesting. We've had a lot of wars in world history. How is this the most defined line you saw? between good and evil talking about 
titration. You got to separate chemicals, good and bad chemicals you want in your solution. How is this the most defined line? Iron, it's reaching. Um, so, okay, e- easy enough. So Russia, one could argue that we also have, you know, our own, not puppet governments per se, but our own causes in foreign countries where we have proxies and things like that. Um, with foreign forces, Russia does the same. You know, Russia has their people behind the scenes in Syria. They have their people, uh, you know, pulling the strings in lots of different places. Again, one could argue, so does the U.S., but all of the regimes that they have propped up were things that are traditionally thought as being evil. And that's not just from, you know, an ethnocentric uh, standpoint. That's not just something people in America think in that things that aren't aligned with American values. It is things that are vastly condemned by the world, like their involvement in a lot of places overseas are just seen as evil. So it's like, yes, you can't necessarily objectively assign something, you know, that that dis, uh, that level of uh, distinction. But for the most part and the most people, they're going to find that the things that Russia supports, you know, totalitarian regimes, oppressive regimes, things like that, those are evil causes. And this is the first time that it's not Russia via proxies. This is Russia, you know, themselves. Like they've actually like stepped out from behind the curtain and this time they're actually fighting. For the most part, it's just, you know, like their agents or their you know, their, their puppet governments in other countries. This is actually Russia in the flesh manifesting. So it's like like onions of mobsters, like levels of mobsters. And you're saying now they're like, no, we're the bad guys and we're going to keep you down. And we, you know, I just, the, a defined line between good and evil. So this is, really this, is Ru- this is Russia, totalitarian regime that is doing, uh, that are is attacking a peaceful neighboring country without provocation. So that is, that is, they are the bad guy, you know, like they started the fight, they threw the first punch, you know, like, and they're in the wrong for what their cause and their goals are. So with that in mind, yes, to find why. You got on ABC's Nightline, you said this. I work as a chemist for a major pharmaceutical company. I think I probably am a pretty small group of the people at my pharmaceutical company who will be using all of their leave time to fight in Ukraine. I want to be on the right side of history. This is my big question. How do you ascertain the right side of history? Because what I'm seeing is, you know, we have like a retarded senile president. Um, You know, uh, we have a lot of problems here. Locally, we have homeless people. You know, we have all these problems. Mental Um, illness, drug addiction. Drug addiction. I met somebody with this. Um, Called the cops on me when I got in the way. Anyway, I have an NDI. You can't talk about that. Um, How do you like ascertain all the way on the other side? I'm going to fly across the world because I'm so sure about this, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, okay. I mean, to start, do you believe in right and wrong and good and evil, just in a general way? Do you think those concepts exist? It's very interesting because I always grew up, you know, we, you look at the civil war in America. The okay. South wanted to own slaves. The North said, that's pretty rude of you. And we've the a South more to it than that. fought a war. I know, but it's like every individual person on the battlefield has their own reason to be there. That seems okay. like a pretty defined line to me, but I don't know. I'm also so, American. I grew up in this country. So I, I, don't, I have no idea the complex cultural history between Ukraine and Russia. They, they share a border. They share language. 
Well, they have similarities with their language for the most part. I mean, Ukrainians speak Ukraine. A lot of them do speak Russian as well, but they have their own language. You know, like this is essentially speciated. They are their own thing. They're not um, a part of Russia. And Russia's big claim to this, which is, I mean, believed even by very few people, very few actual Russians, is that this is all part of the Russian empire. You know, like dating back, depending on how Putin wants to manipulate the numbers, he'll either say in stating back, you know, like hundreds of years or, you know, during the, the height of the Soviet empire or, you know, many different things to essentially customize this as being something that's righteous. So when you look at something that is good and evil and you do have to make some degree, of, there's some degree of subjectivity to that, but the, the critics of our intervention there, because a lot of people have said that, you know, like this is not our fight. This is just this is between, you know, Russia, who everybody thought was honestly scarier than the end of being and the Ukraine. This is the same arguments that people were making against Hitler when he took the Sudetenland back in 1938. So he took over somewhere else and nobody wanted World War Two. They were this is fresh off the heels, you know, generation later uh, off of World War One. And nobody wanted to go into that again. So they just after he took back the Sudetenland. German speaking part of Czechoslovakia, he just said that that's it. This is what I'm doing. And then the world sort of just conceded. I was like, all right, we're going to let him take. This. But, you know, on the condition that he does not take more territory. But of course, as as totalitarian governments do, six months later, they march, uh, March 1939. They he uh, violated the, the Munich Agreement and absorbed all of Czechoslovakia. And then in September of 1939, he invaded Poland, kicked off what is usually referred to as the start of World War II in Europe. So this is that. This is Putin has already said that he wasn't going to stop like out of his own mouth. He wasn't going to stop with Ukraine. He wanted every country that used to be part of the Russian Empire. This is including Czech, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, etc. He wanted to reabsorb all of these back to, you know, the fatherland. So allowing him to do this does a few things. A, it, it signals that his actions are righteous because nobody's stopping him, that, you know, like we're, we're acquiescing to this. And it also emboldens him to uh, undertake further future campaigns. Let me make two points about Hitler. Number one, it's very weird that in 1938, he had the Olympics in Berlin and he was pretty sure that the Aryan man, the white man was the master race. And then Jesse Owens came in from the University of and out sprinted everybody. And and imagine the egg on his face that day. This black guy from America just beats the shit out of all his uh, Nazis. And then well, he continued. He had a rationale to that. Then he continued to kill everybody that didn't fit. It's like you were just beaten meters and seconds, bro. Let it go. Well, yeah, yeah his Chris. rationale to that, I mean, to go into like really slippery territory was essentially that running and you know running jumping lifting things is just like animalistic properties and he his plan was part of the third reich's plan was not to annihilate africa he was going to turn the continent of africa into a slave colony because he thought that they were good at running jumping lifting things so yeah <laughs> he did have a proviso in there to account for this so he was yes. just like this is good for for what it is Life and the, the other point that I want to make is there's a book called Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler uh, by Anthony Sutton, who forensically showed that Prescott Bush and Avil Harriman partially funded Hitler out of Wall Street. Uh, 
and I, with the help Hitler of was very uh, popular prior to Skull and Bones, to yeah. Time Magazine Man of the Year. So Skull and Bones, Wall Street, they're helping Hitler in the background, trying to create this bizarro new world order where they can control the peasants like chess pieces. Um, you got to be real sure. That's careful. new to you. <laughs> I mean, that has been that is history. That is just what history is. It's rulers. So you want to be on the right side. You want to be on the right side of it. And Russia is not that. Uh, you've also been a bodyguard, Damien. And I see like a similarity, a little so like you have combat experience. And so you've been a bodyguard. You were, I don't, I, you were describing little gigs you would take where there would be an important person. You'd have to, you know, cover for them. Uh, you know, so if, I guess in that scenario, if there's an attacker, if you're trying to bodyguard someone and someone tries to harm them, then you're on the right side to protect them. That's your job, right? Yes. But when it's country versus country, you go across the world. I don't know. I think I think you like uh, doing Boy Scout stuff, you know? Especially so, I mean, that, that's one of those things where it's like, again, you know, like you, you've never been in combat. I think you have been in some fights. Right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, yeah, so yeah. Th- there is a, a pretty large departure in between what people think combat is and what it actually is. And also the, the, the major differences of just like, you know, again, like the one thing was phrased as, you know, like playing Boy Scouts, like there, there's actual things. This is these are situations that have the most dire consequences for, you know, like me personally, for other people, um, you know, if we let a town get taken over versus you know uh actually push back an enemy like things these are the things that matter the most on earth because this is very much life and death so this is so vastly disconnected from the average american's life and understanding that i can see that people don't conceptualize it correctly like that the actual work being done people essentially equate to it being like a movie or you know like you're doing this against other you know npcs or like this is a plot device or something else but people just don't understand it and like that's okay and that's fine and it takes you know a small percentage of americans and just people in general to do this work when everybody else so that everybody else can be woefully ignorant of all of it so that's that. I'll tell you this. I got a liberal arts degree. I'm, a, you know, I, I know. I'm kind of a pussy, though. I've, I've fainted twice giving blood. OK, so that's you who you're actually? talking to. So talk mm-hmm. about NPC, you know, um, this uh, clip of Damien Bastian on Nightline. Yeah. Bastian and Van Dyke believe the people of Ukraine have shown they have what it takes to fight. They just need the skills. We want them to be as deadly as they can. So maybe, maybe the Russian people will blink first. It's trying to get them to blink first on the front line. To me, I, I know, I just want to give this experiment. It's like, it's sure. all, to me, you going over there, God bless you, you're a friend of mine. It, it sounds like a Brazilian going to fight in a conflict between North and South Korea. Like, did you have, you had an interpreter with you, I'm sure, to kind of- We had an interpreter for most of it. I think it's about 20%. Of Ukrainians can speak English, so not that much to be honest. Um, so with that, for the most part, we had either an interpreter. Uh, one of the people that was with us did have um, some Ukrainian heritage, so they could speak the language. And also Google Translate, you could just say something into it, and it would spit it back. So, what an age we live in. Were um, were there any Ukrainians that were Russian sympathizers, or did they all 
seem to be uh, in the area that these Rus- Ruskies are taking our territory. So the only area, no, the short, the the long and short of that is no, there was nobody who was a Russian sympathizer. Um, the the western western like far western part of the country at some point did have uh some russian sympathizers who you know were allowed they weren't pushed out of the country they weren't persecuted they weren't anything to any state-sponsored degree like are you going to say that maybe somebody had an issue with someone else on a personal level and there was some conflict yeah very likely but nothing was systemic Uh, there was no real violence towards the people who were more russian sympathizers than not prior to the breakout of this war um and that was one of the things that putin used as a justification is that he was saying that you know his people like our people are being killed so we need to go in there and we need to rescue them and get them out of ukraine you know lest they be killed by these butchers and just simply not true so there were some some times and some pushes where Russia has tried to, you know, put the feelers out and get some of their their fingers into Ukraine prior to this. And those times were definitely met swiftly with violence and and ended fast. So uh, there has been a history of that, but that's not something that I saw. And it would be so unpopular to voice that opinion during the middle of a war against Russia that I don't think anybody would have told us, even if they were a little on the fence. Did you? ascertain any sort of the banking interests involved like is russia collapsing and need oil that's in the ukraine is the ukraine well, not russia has the oil but continue no it's, it's like one of the highest oil producing countries in the world sure like is so does ukraine not pay their bills and then they want you know like was there any banking interest behind this is my question i mean no russia so essentially russia attacked ukraine for a few actual reasons one is they want to be part of nato and this is too much democracy on the doorstep of russia so i mean in a a similar way that we engaged in the conflict in vietnam it's because we didn't want uh communism spreading throughout the world so a, a probably better parallel would be like cuban missile crisis it's just too they're just too close to home right like we we can allow russia to take over and bring their weapons of mass destruction that close to America's doorstep. Well, in the same sense, them joining NATO and them being part of the EU and them doing all of these other steps that they wanted to take is just too close to Russia. You know, there's just too much uh, offensive capability that we could potentially bring to bear within Ukraine. Whether that was actually going to happen or not, Putin just did not want to take that chance. So he preemptively attacked Ukraine to prevent them from becoming part of the UN, which would mean they were protected under this because an attack on one is an attack on all. And we would actually have to be forced to do something instead of just giving them aid. My my interpretation of this is when every country has its own currency, then there's more individual sovereignty. So what Hitler couldn't solve militarily by uniting Europe with the gun the bankers uh, the, of the EU, um, these unelected oligarching interests, uh, passive aggressively tied Europe together with a currency to centralize their control. Um, so um, then if Ukraine joins NATO, then go on for all, but then it's also 
uh, a small conflict becomes a massive geopolitical conflict, in my opinion. But you're on the front line. I'm not. And you said this on Nightline. One, two, three. Gotcha. Good. Thank you. Here, Bastian and Van Dyke met with the Territorial Defense Forces, a sort of military reserve, which has expanded to include civilian volunteers. One very skilled marksman can make a pretty substantial impact on the battlefield. You might be able to halt an attack or at least make it so disjointed that they won't be fighting as one cohesive force. Damn. True. One sniper on the front lines. Yeah. There's one one of my favorite snipers of all time is uh, this one guy, Simo Heha, who was in, he fought against the Russians, I believe he was Finnish, and he, he used a iron sights, no scopes, no optics, no anything, uh, iron sights, hunting rifle, and he has, I think, the greatest number of confirmed kills, like 545 or something ridiculous. Confirmed kills against the Russians. They would try artillery against him, didn't get him. They would try counter snipers, he would kill them. And they would just bring in all sorts of things. And he would just take out the, the person, the highest ranking individual in any formation, pretty much right off the bat. And then it would just fall into disarray. And he was able to keep the enemy from advancing as just one man. So the the actual training of their their top tier marksmen was important because these are the people who are actually going out to the front line they were going to you know north east of kiev or northwest kiev they were having a lot of fighting there and then they're you know like far west country maripool places like that so all of these all the russian advances nobody none of their high up people none of their their ranking structure really wanted to even stick their head out because once they're killed, then, you know, like it, it becomes uh, a problem with chain of command. And then when you actually get another person within this this rank structure killed, then everything just falls apart. And the actual plans of it, some some of these plans, uh, especially since Putin isn't a very trusting person, it is known only to a few different people. So like the army just knows it's moving. Uh, the person at the front of the column knows why it's moving, but everybody else is kept in the dark because Russia. And so if you kill the person who actually has the knowledge, the rest of people just fall apart and just the, the whole thing withers and dies. Man, you can't even trust your own people. That's a hell of a war to fight. Um, you're an interesting dude. Like you, you get your thrills from certain things. I know you don't drink or do drugs. No, never done drugs. Don't drink. You don't even ride a motorcycle. Because Once you, or twice. That's it. In your life, you've ridden a motorcycle at least yes twice that and i think it's too dangerous there's not a, there's too many it's an, uh, i mean it's an unnecessary risk and it also like just why i understand the thrill of it certain people like it but you know like i do not want that to be my swan song because i hit a fucking pothole or some woman changed lanes into me in her minivan like yeah. it would be a little bit anticlimactic but everybody does their own thing motorcycles are fun time and place sure go for it but it's just not. You play a little poker, you work nine to five, and then you fly to go fight. Or no less. Interesting. Um, very interesting. I have a very much different lifestyle than you. Uh, number. Yeah, of, I would say that's probably true. <laughs> number five clip of you from Nightline. Yeah. The whole point is to repeat this training over and over, getting them comfortable handling their government-issued weapons. Ah, oh, their government-issued weapons fighting what do you have the phrasing of that hmm? what do you have what part of government issue weapons do you have an issue with 
the Ukrainians are pulling themselves up by their bootstraps to fight. Were there Nazis in their ranks? I, I hear a lot of reports, even mainstream news is saying that the Ukrainians, a lot of them are neo-Nazis so, and shave no. their head. And, so, so no, there's a small part um, the, in the, the, the Azov battalion in the far, far east of the country. Those are the people that had to fight the Russians prior to this. Like the actual, these are the people who had to fight all like the the Russian sympathizers and like the the far the far other end of the spectrum uh, versus them. And I think their group has twelve hundred people that identify as neo Nazis, which is by the way not even ten percent of what we have in the United States. So it is such an insignificant percentage of their country that to say that this is the reason you know the invasion is happening or this is like a gross indictment of the country itself is just such a drastic overstatement like there you are more 10 percent 10 percent 12 uh oh what are you saying i'm sorry 1200 people yeah they have like the 1200 neo-nazis within their entire country we have per capita a much greater number of them in our country and neither of which are significant in any statistical way like it's just not it's just not impactful um their country so after they did a lot of the fighting the the azov group um after they did a lot of fighting their government you know were trying to disband the group they took it to a vote and essentially it came down to being you know like the enemy of my enemy is my friend and although they might not agree with them and their ideology, their actual contributions to the country of Ukraine is greater than essentially the disgust that some people have towards their ideology because they're not they're not really putting action towards. So what they believe is not manifested and you know they're not like publicly lynching people or anything like that. So they're not they're not a terror group. They're just people with an ideology that you disagree with. It would be like you know, everybody in like the extreme far right Republican Party is about as bad as these people. Right. There's always outliers to a group. That's um, So, no, it, it is not widespread at all. Are there more or less than 1,200 Zimzers non-binaries in Delaware, Wilmington? I would imagine. I, I don't know the statistics on <laughs> the trans community in my area. But probably you got to get out more. Go on. If you had a mustache like that, you go out on a motorcycle, you'll find them. I'm sure they're there. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certain that we have a pretty substantial mix. This is why the whole EU NATO thing I disagree with. Again, my but utopia can, is biodiversity. My utopia is every European country has its own currency. For example, Greece people, you know, people. They had Greece. that before and switched. <laughs> yeah, well, here's why. I think, you know, people in Greece, they have a Mediterranean lifestyle. They want to retire at 42. You know, they don't like working. So then naturally their, uh, their currency becomes like very worthless because it's all, all everyone's trying to retire on the same dime and it crashes it but then let's say you live in germany and it's like oh you can go to greece you work 60 for, hour weeks for for uh, for pennies you know so mm -hmm. let's go there and, and be lazy with the mediterranean and then go back to work you know yeah so in this way it kind of all balances out when you have the eu together not now you have unelected banking oligarchs kind of geo planning everything 
Africa will be our slaves for you. And then over here is, uh, you know, and it's just the 80 years control. ago. The central, uh, well, there's neo not 1200 neo Nazis in the Ukraine, you know. Who the fuck cares? I mean, it's just such a statistically, there's 7.5 billion people on Earth. It's just not, it's just not even a slightly significant thing. I mean, that, that's a rounding error in a population. All right. Well, here's one uh, thing in the life of Eric Hollybog. Like one of my big goals for my life is to go all the way to Thailand. Let's do this thought experiment. Me and you, we go to Thailand, Bangkok. You know, we're okay. betting on Muay Thai fights, right? Me and you. And you, you, come, you, you show up with some uh, Ukrainian special forces guy that you became friends with out there, right? I show up with the German from the Bundesnachrichtendienst, the German CIA, right? We're, we're, we're having fun. We're betting on fights. But there's a language barrier. And we have to bet through a bookie um, who might be in the mob and he might be clipping our bets. We don't understand them. We have to, like, borrow our neighbors for interpreters. We don't know the money. So then, uh, you know, the bookie starts yelling at us. And I, I think that you owe the bookie money because of how – I'm like, my, my fighter won. You're like, no, I bet on the guy who won. You know, then the bookie's yelling at us. This is a conflict between Eric and Damien, right? So we start fighting. But then your Ukrainian takes out a gun. He shoots the guy from the Bundesnachrichtendienst. He takes out a taser. He, he tases the bookie. All of a sudden, the Thailand police get involved. You know, they release dogs. Then the fighters get involved. They're throwing knees. I, I got a liberal arts degree. I get knocked out. I fall on a grandma. She has a heart attack. Okay. Something that a conflict between Eric Kollerbach and Damien Boston now the whole stadium is in a riot because of, you know, this is how I see NATO. It's like something that like, you know, a, a, a disagreement between an Italian bistro and some drunk English tourist that didn't pay for his pizza escalates into mutual assured destruction. And NATO is justifying their existence by stroking flames to the putting gas on the fire. So, <laughs> If I can understand that correctly, yeah. The who are the two parties? <laughs> you have uh, who am I in the, this this uh, analogy, and who are you? Is this Russia and Ukraine, or is this uh, is this NATO in the world? Or look, we these? just we just showed up to bet on Muay Thai fights, like honest modern gentlemen, and then five people are killed, twelve people are injured. You know, and then a, a riot breaks out, you know, yeah. they got, not to mention the janitor's got to clean up afterward, the popcorn's everywhere. Job security. <laughs> well, okay. So do you know, liberal arts degree, so you might, the poem, The Hangman by uh, Maurice Ogden. And it was, so more or less, a hangman comes to this town and he starts erecting scaffolding and he has a noose and he has a list of people he's going to execute. And everybody gathers in the town square, you know, small little, uh, small gallows. And then he, everybody's sitting there, you know, holding their breath, you know, like wondering who's going to be killed. And then it's someone else. And then everybody breathes a sigh of relief. Nobody actually thinks about who is actually being killed. Thinking the thing, it's a Jew first. And, and then because nobody wanted, okay, so. Go. All right. So essentially with, with that. So the hangman first kills somebody else and everybody else uh, is too relieved about the fact that it's not them 
to care about the person who it is. And then it's another person. Every day, the, the gallows grow a little bit more. There's more and more people hanging. And then eventually, it is someone else. There's only one person left in the square. And then that guy's name gets called. And he just can't understand it. He was like, well, you know, like, wait, why am I being killed? You know, like, you know, I didn't do anything. And essentially, his crime is that he didn't do anything. Is that this is that he just waited and he allowed all these horrible things to happen. And there comes a certain point where not not choosing something is a choice in itself. So, you know, to go to like Kierkegaard, all, all of that, where sometimes it is the worst sin you can commit is inaction. So in the case of Russia versus anybody or more or less any country that's trying to take over another peaceful nation, another sovereign country, uh, to uh, allow that to happen sets a precedent for it to happen more. And we are not, it's very important to recognize we are not sending offensive weapons to Ukraine. We're just giving them things that are defensive. We're not giving them, you know, you know, Patriot, or uh, we're not giving them cruise missiles so they could, you know, like fire shots into Moscow. We're giving them things that either attack, shoot down helicopters, attack aircraft of any kind, or shoot down other missiles. So Patriot missile system is designed to shoot down their missiles. So when their cruise missiles start shooting in, um, and when they send a barrage in, they're able to actually defend themselves. So what we are giving them is defensive capability. We're not giving them, you know, stuff that... We're not giving them, you know, nerve gas. We're not giving them, uh, you know, ICBMs. We're not giving them something that they can attack Russia. We're giving them things solely so they could defend themselves. And that is the difference. My last guest before you was Andrew Meyer. And he talked at, uh, John Kerry came to the University of Florida to give the most boring talk about disclosing nothing. And he was probably selling a book that sold, you know, 20 copies or whatever at the time just a slush fund for this piece of garbage to go around and talk down to everybody from the skull and bones. And Andrew Meyer goes, you're in the skull and bones. What, what was that with that? And didn't you win the election, but there was all this voter fraud and the cops came in and tased him. And he's like, don't tase me, bro. Don't tase me. And the 300 people in the stands watched nine cops tase uh, undergrad for asking two questions of uh, American oligarch. And um, so speaking of all the NPCs in the stands n- allowing this tyranny to happen, my, my opinion, Damien, is that we have so many piece of garbage douchebag politicians here, you know, everyone on Galen Maxwell's flight list, for example, those are actionable targets. Why muck about on the other side of the world with, before we take out our... So essentially... Dirtbags here. <laughs> get this straight. You're you're contending that we have plenty of bad people here that I should carry out extrajudicial killings of instead of going to other countries to defend peaceful people being attacked by the second strongest military ever erected in the history of humanity. And those are parallel to you. Do you ever find that like, you know, let's say this guy, let's, let's straw man person. Dirt bag. He's on drugs all the time, Mr. Straw Man. You know, he's not paying his bills. Roommate. You know, Um, no, Mr. Straw Man. Mr. Straw Man. Okay. Okay. And then he gets a dog. Like he goes to the pound and adopts a puppy with AIDS and two legs. Wouldn't have AIDS, but continue. Right. And he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help this puppy. It's like, dude, you have 
before you bring a puppy into your mess. Your own house in order. Yeah. Get your own house in order. So, you know, military industrial complex. I mean, we're we're giving them, we have to now given them, I know they had another funding bill that came up that was like radically more like $36 billion or something, but we have to now given Ukraine $2 billion, which is just nothing in the scheme of things for a nation. It's just nothing. I mean, that's like nothing to like Elon Musk and like Jeff Bezos. Like, so $2 billion to have the impact that it has had on Russia is worth it. Let me offer you a sort of an example of how this is worth it economically, even for you as a taxpayer. So there people are saying that we should send them body armor and bullets. So just for all intents and purposes, a Ukrainian soldier is going to trade pretty evenly with a Russian infantryman. So, you know, if you have 10 of each, they will basically, you know, fight to within a man of each other. They're pretty equal. You know, then you go into Spetsnaz and things like that with extra training that are going to kill more people, you know, like they're going to have higher kill to death ratios. But for the most part, if you give them a thousand bullets, that thousand bullets is going to trade pretty evenly with a thousand bullets from Russia. So that's not very cost effective. You're doing one to one. Russia has a, the economy of about the state of Florida. That's it. Russia is not a rich nation by like any good standard. So them losing a dollar for every dollar we lose is a war of attrition we can win. So that's already a positive. So with bullet for bullet, that is technically positive equity for us. However, if you go into the the actual uh, weeds of the, the examples of what we're giving them. So like, let's say you give them uh, a surface to air missile that So that $80,000 missile is going to shoot down a $40 million attack helicopter. So now you're talking about 500 to one. You're getting a 500 time return on your money and you have more money than your enemy. So the, the money that they're losing already is one for one more majorly impactful on Russia than it is on us. But then when you look at it in the scheme that they're losing 500 times more than it, this is probably 2,000, 5,000 times the effect of that that money is having on Russia. So that is why the $2 billion of aid shouldn't even be something that people are considering to be an issue because what the the impact that it's having on our enemy globally is so, 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 so much disproportionately worse that this is economically viable for us. Have you seen the debt calculator? What do we, we, we owe $25 trillion to the rest of the world? $2 billion just isn't anything. And most of it's internal debt just for the sake of argument. Most of that is like bonds and things. So it's like debt within America. A lot of it is foreign debt. Uh, Brazil owns a lot of us. China owns a lot of us. Japan, other countries. Let, let but, me take that $80,000 missile bargain. Bargain $80,000 missile. I mean, if you take, uh, you know, buy a home or buy a school or buy a hospital. This is kind of like a perpetual goodwill device. When you take it $80,000, you don't have a, when you blow up a million dollar missile, for example, you don't get 5% equity. It, it explodes Mm -hmm. causing death. So you don't get equity return on your investment. Yeah. So it depends on what you think your investment is. So if if damaging Russia and its military and its infrastructure is a goal or is something that you find to be economical, that is an unbelievably good investment. That's like if you could have bought if your great grandfather could have got bought a Pablo Picasso for, you know, five hundred dollars. It's like, okay, 
but $500, you know, when you correct for inflation and stuff from, you know, 110 years ago to now is going to be obviously more than $500, but you know, like there are Picassos that sell only hundreds of millions. So this is definitely a good investment if you think that stopping Russia or slowing Russia down is something that you want. So if you're, if that is your end, the means are definitely justified. What if your end is uh, a beautiful world of love and peace and two-legged puppies with cancer, all healed? You want two-legged puppies with cancer. <laughs> what if, what if your, your goal is peace and love and four-legged and ones prosperity? With no cancer? Um, so that's just ridiculous. So, I mean, th- the shittiest song of all time, catchy as it may be, and something I probably liked in middle school, is Imagine by John Lennon. <laughs> Because it's just it's just horseshit. This is just not the world we live in. And and what has propelled our incredibly vicious, incredibly violent species forward with all of the progress and everything that has happened. Mainly those advancements are through and because of wars. We are just not a peaceful species. We're just never going to be. We never have been. It's not our defining characteristic. We're competitive and sometimes competitiveness on a national level turns out to be wars, conquest, things like that. So this is just not something that could happen. You, you are taking out one of the main components of us as a species and then being like, well, you know, imagine a world without this. Well, you're imagining a world without people. And hey, then war is the answer because that inevitably does go that direction. I just want a basic currency on friendship and love, but that's not the world we live in. And one person I met, you know, we were in German class together in high school, but I went to Germany in exchange and I uh, met Klaus Schwab Jr. Um, He's the son of the head of the World Economic Forum. And he said something interesting about this Ukrainian conflict. Klaus Schwab Jr. put on his Instagram at Klaus Schwab Jr. He said this of the Ukrainian conflict. I just want to run this by you, see if you can confirm or deny what he says here. Oh, nice glad that you're able to Jack Klaus Schwab Jr. I have the green screen up because we are going to start a war, digital war. Oh, we have lots of graphics set up. Well, this all started because Herr Putin said, why don't want uh, the NATO in the Ukraine? Well, we say, well, 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 and we blame the NATO in the Ukraine. And then Herr Putin said, I don't want the NATO in the Ukraine. Well, 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 well. We put the NATO in the Ukraine. And then he said, no, I'm kind of serious about this. You know, NATO in the Ukraine. Well, well, well. And then he files a missile, and then we're like, where's the victim? Oh no, why are you doing this, Herr Putin? Now we can start the war with a slush fund for you. <laughs> Bye, my slabs. So $2 billion to $36 billion. They want um, the 36. Believe that wasn't actually approved. I believe that got unintended shot down. So Putin, with the economy of Florida and a lot of square miles to defend, doesn't want all of Europe behind Ukraine because then he can get taken over, perhaps. So maybe devil's advocate, he says, I mean, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So any country that has nuclear weapons, it's just too much of a deterrent for anybody to attack him. And the other thing is, and historically, this has been true, World War Two and every other conflict, more or less. And anybody who's ever played risk, you just can't take over Russia. It's just too goddamn big. And you don't even want it. For the most part, it's just arid wastelands. Yes, they have oil, but have fun with the square footage that you're going to need to take over to actually like monetize any of that. But no, it's just, it's not, it's not. And nobody attacked him. So like whether even this could happen that you could someday maybe attack and take over Russia, that's just a thought experiment. What actually is happening is they 
offensively struck out at a neighboring country that was not attacking or engaged in any kind of conflict with them. So they were the aggressor and they are not in the right in any way, shape or form. And there's not even an argument really reasonable that could be had that says anything but that. Do you think Zelensky and Putin talk to each other on the telephone before the first thing? Like how much? Sure. I, I, I mean, no, I'm not sure. I'm confident that that Putin probably did say it's like, I am doing this. This is what I want. And, you know, do this or else. I mean, he's threatened all kinds of stuff. He threatened chemical and biological weapons, which is like hugely ridiculous. and meant I had to schlep around a goddamn gas mask for a few weeks. Um, so, no, like he has made all kinds of crazy proclamations. He had his nuclear forces put on high alert. Like he did all sorts of saber rattling and other things. And essentially the biggest weapon Russia has is fear, is that everybody believed, myself included, that Russia is this unbelievably powerful like military war machine. And this has shown that they're not all that. They, they were very good at being hype men for themselves and just historically making it seem like they're this huge threat. Like I thought, you know, under the U.S., it would have been Russia and then, you know, third place China as far as military capability. And like after seeing how much Russia has <laughs> has just botched this invasion, it's just they're they're not that much of a threat in any other way other than nuclear. They have nuclear weapons and that's you know, super concerning in the amount of damage that they can do. It, it's definitely there. They've tested the nukes. We know we they have them. But other than that, it's just not really a force to fear. And that's something that Russia lost. And I don't even think that's something they can get back. So the their biggest casualty so far of this war is just fear, is that they lost their ability to intimidate their neighbors. And something that they had just in, in, in boundless quantity before that nobody wanted to screw with Russia. They just had this reputation for being so brutal and so capable and just able to do so much. And they haven't like their methods are pretty brutal. You know, they are raping and murdering people and doing sending people into like Siberian work camps and horrible things like that on a small level. But Jesus Christ, they didn't take over Ukraine and it's been months and they're how much they have been halted and even pushed back by 99% just Ukrainian forces. And yes, we basically allowed Ukraine to shut down the sky, giving them Stinger missiles and some of the anti-tank missiles and things like that. We gave, we were able to stop some of Russia's advance because of that. We were able to train them to use these weapon systems that they didn't have on their own. And that helped them basically even the odds in the sky. But most of this ground fighting, it's just Ukrainians winning. Um, I, everything that you said about Russia, I could say about NATO. I mean, what other thing is there? They're, they're a collective of saber rattling. They go, well, if this domino falls and we have these countries in our pockets and if it, then these countries are going to defend these people. Look, me and you showed up to a hypothetical Muay Thai fight and then, you know, the, the, but that the, isn't everyone real. got involved. And, like, and it's fun to make jokes about things, but this is, you know, the most serious thing it can be for the people living you know, like there are actual like reports and you believe a lot of crazy conspiracy theory bullshit, but there are a lot of reports and stuff that have come out where it's like, you know, you're getting, you know, children raped by soldiers and, you know, old women and like probably old men. And this is nothing new to war. Unfortunately, that is part of every single war, you know, time in memoriam. But this is a horrible thing that Russia had enacted. Like the actual specter of war is something that is there's nothing more serious with it because, you know, like you know, with it comes the four horsemen. <laughs> so like, you know, of 
you're going to get war and you're going to get like the killing and stuff that everybody, you know, in every single movie that Hollywood has ever glorified. Uh, you have all of this, you know, direct like man v man fighting, but then you have all of this horrible shit. You have, you know, like destruction of like the histories and the arts and stuff of areas. You have, you know, like the rape and murder of women and children. You have all of these horrible things that come inevitably with every single war. And to to bring that into somebody else's country, to bring that into someone else's house is horrible. So there isn't, this isn't an analogous to something else. This isn't like a Muay Thai fight. This isn't like anything else. This is exactly what it is. And if you haven't seen it, you can't know it. And 99% of people have no idea what it's about. And that's okay. Um, you do have soldiers. You do have the people that do go overseas and you do all this stuff so that everybody else can sit in their blissful, stupid little fucking bubble and believe all the things that they do. And they can make jokes about it and they can, you know, have fun and they could do all these other things and get charged with aggravated assault and just have fun life. Wait, who are you talking um, about right there? Who are you talking I, about? Everybody who's, I mean, that's just most people. Uh, let's Strong out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah just people. <laughs> it's people. Um, so all of this, all of this stuff can happen essentially in a world so separated from yours that you can't conceptualize and it's just not something you can know it's not something i could have known either so you have to see it to believe it it's like uh you know like when you get the red pill and the blue pill and most people are just never going to be in that position so they're going to get to just wake up and just keep going to their jobs and having their lattes and everything else so this is so serious that he brought this to someone else's world and that is why it's being condemned by everyone. Switzerland, for the first time in Switzerland's history, broke their neutrality and supported another country, that being Ukraine. Like, this is something with the exception of, what, three countries on Earth other than Russia? Because obviously they're going to support themselves. It, it's like North Korea, Iran, and sort of China. Um, oh, in, in what one of the other countries that Russia essentially just, like, owns um are the only ones that are actually supporting russia that's it so you just get like you know like this triumvirate of evil and other than that the rest of the world is pretty much united in their condemnation of russia in in a general way and specifically this attack on ukraine i have such a disdain for the mainstream media an unbelievable no. unbearable disdain for america's mainstream media because it's oh i mean they lied to us about trump being best friends with putin and and the all the horseshit there that was eventually debunked and then nobody apologized they got us into the war in vietnam they got us into that was a, a little cluster, bit ago but continue a clusterfuck in iraq uh and then we got afghanistan involved in it and well in fairness afghanistan sort of first that's where all the training camps and all the bad shit came from that's where osama bin laden and 19 hijackers were and then they attacked us Iraq was one that had absolutely jack shit and nothing to do with 9-11, and that's the country we should not have been in. But George Bush Sr. did lose, you know, some face with not finishing the war and killing uh, Saddam Hussein back then. So I guess the son wanted to avenge that failure or oversight. So, yeah, Iraq probably shouldn't happen because they had nothing to do with 9-11, even in the slightest little bit. And, I mean, Osama bin Laden had been had said that he hated Saddam Hussein because Saddam was an innovator of Islam. So you would think the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, Americans are too stupid to understand the difference between Shiites, Sunnis, and Wahhabi. So we thought that was a very plausible reason why 9-11 happened. So there's the war. Well, I, that continue? 
I think it's interesting that Larry Silverstein bought the Twin Towers uh, seven months before they exploded and then won double insurance claim on it. I mean, it's one thing to be a war profiteer, but it's one another thing to go. Not war. Um, well, I need double my buddy because there were two planes. I mean, come on, dude. Come on, Larry Silverstein. I don't uh, realistically know the nuances of his insurance claim. In yes, his... I do. I said, I don't. Oh, okay. I, said, I do not, so I'm not even going to comment on it because I don't know. Well, he Maybe you it. do. I don't know if you do or not, but I'm saying that I do not, so I'm not going to comment on something that I don't have knowledge of. Well, let me inform you. They were filled with asbestos. It would be cost more than the buildings to remedy asbestos on every interlocking I-beam of the thing. Well, asbestos is amazing. I mean, just chemically, like, do you know, do you know what asbestos does? Do you know? It, like, get, it gives people it mesothelioma. Okay, sure. It can in very specific circumstances, essentially when you break off pieces of it and you have uh, exposed asbestos, the fibers of that can mutate your body and, you know, fuck you up. But what asbestos is from a fire retarding standpoint and, you know, brake pads on military vehicles, which by the way, still have them. Uh, there is just nothing like it. there's nothing that actually has the properties on the same level of asbestos. When it was originally created, it was like this miracle compound. Um, nobody, this was just like, unlike anything else. This was like, you know, when they made Kevlar or when they made Teflon or, or something like that, um, it was a very big deal when it was made. The reason it was used so much is because nothing has this, the, the heat transfer and uh, friction properties that asbestos does. So they weren't going to renovate the building because all the asbestos wasn't exposed. It was all encased in it, which is a really good fire retardant. And as long as it's not uh, broken free and people aren't breathing them in, which is why it's bad for brakes, because that's on the outsides of cars. Uh, it's good. It's a great compound. There's no reason to actually remediate for that. Yeah. Both plane, uh, both towers went down at free fall speed, almost like yeah. It got it was quite literally designed to do that. I mean, you were in Mister Quaglio's demonstration of how that worked because you, if you heat metal up enough, you're like the strength of it goes to shit. Like he literally with his bare hands, and if you remember Mister Q, he was like 145 pounds, bent an I beam that could support six tons by hand by heating it. So yes, that can happen. That is a thing that is like you yourself could go out, get an acetylene torch and demo this in your backyard. Like, yes, metal does fatigue and get a lot weaker at temperatures. And weird how a plane loaded with JP-8 having just traveled 500 miles an hour into the building does knock a little few things loose. And then it burning for hours and hours and hours. Well, all, all I know is that but, the Delane Maxwell trial keeps getting continuances. I love how that has nothing to do it, with it. It will about to. It will about uh, to. Okay, please. By all means, uh, the, 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 the Delane Maxwell trial just got another continuance to talk about hand jobs for seven more months in the Southern District of New York. And some people called the architects and engineers of 9-11 Truth have a very different opinion than you on what happened that day. Uh, of 9-11 and I, Larry Silverstein is a key uh, person of interest in that. But they can't talk to the Southern District of New York because Ghislaine Maxwell and hand jobs. Meanwhile, the flight log is out there. hand jobs? Bill Clinton went to Epstein's Island 23 times, but let's go on the other side of the world. He's a billionaire uh, so economist. Oh, a philanthropist. Well, okay, no, he had like $500 million. My mistake, not a billionaire. But he was a Harvard economist and a brilliant person. So yeah, there is more of a reason to talk to him. That'd be like everybody who interacted with R. Kelly is like, 
you know, he was also a musician or like, you know, people who did a music video with Michael Jackson. It's just like, well, he was probably a diddling eight year olds. It's like, no, maybe he just liked music. So, I mean, yes. Was Epstein a good person? No. Is there a disproportionate breakage rate when it comes to people he interacted with? Yeah. Does everybody, is everyone contaminated who ever even so much as looked at him? No, the man wasn't radioactive. Um, I disagree. I think he ran a commercial blackmail operation for intelligence agencies. I don't think he invested dick and shit, but that's my opinion. I want to talk about this book. It came out in 1935. It was written by Smedley Butler, and it was called War is a Racket. And he said this. Then the bankers collect their profits, but the soldier pays the biggest part of the bill. If you don't believe me, visit American cemeteries on the battlefields abroad or visit any one of the veterans hospitals in the United States on a tour of the country, in the midst of which I am in the time of this writing, I have visited 18 government hospitals for veterans. In them total 50,000 destroyed men, men who were the pick of the nation 18 years ago. World War I was pretty fucking brutal. Yeah, okay. Boys with normal viewpoints were taken out of the fields and offices and factories and classrooms and put in the ranks. There they were remolded. They were made over. They were made to about face to regard murder as the order of the day. They were put shoulder to shoulder and through mass psychology, they were entirely changed. We used them for a couple of years, trained them to think nothing at all of killing or being killed. How do you react to that expert? Have you wandered no, around? I mean, Smedley Butler was, I think, one of two uh, double recipients, Medal of Honor. So lots of props to him. Um, but a couple things. A, this was, you know, nearly 100 years ago. So, but a lot of it is true. So there is a lot of money to be made. Let's just be realistic, like in every single conflict. Like, if you knew the war in Ukraine was coming, like a year ago and you shorted certain stocks and you you bought money in other things and invested properly you would have made a killing on this unintended and so yes like there is a lot of money that can be made in wars absolutely that is literally the reason wars are waged historically too like this is this is not new this is the same with crusades and you know like them bringing back castle gold and everything else so that is always the way it goes and yeah you need people to fight it and those are the people who are, you know, the destroyed men in these World War One hospitals. Uh, a lot of them, you know, badly, badly fucked up from mustard gas and everything else and just trench warfare. Can't imagine World War One looked like one of the least enjoyable wars ever. So, yes, uh, what he is saying is true. And you do condition people to be able to kill other people. Even when they wouldn't necessarily want to do that in different circumstances and that is not necessarily something people can immediately turn off so that's going to affect their personality after they come home uh you do always have psych screenings after deployments so that when you get home you know and you're in like go mode you don't just like you know your your wife comes up and like tickles you and you don't like turn around and just like you know shank her 14 times kill her so there there is some reconditioning that you have to do to integrate back into society so, yes, you are going to have the people who are actually on the front line are going to be doing the dirty work. And those are the people who are directly risking their lives. So they are, in quotes, paying the bill while the other people are making money. So, no, I don't disagree with you. 
Have you been to a VA? Yeah. Oh, it's sad. I mean, it's not entirely sad, but like there are a lot of people, you know, you get like, uh, you know, amputations, a lot of people, there's a lot of psychological trauma. Some of the people have attempted suicide attempts. So they have like facial disfigurement for like moving the gun in their mouth a little bit too, too much to the side when they flinch, just horrible shit like that, that you wouldn't necessarily want to see. So yeah, I, it's out there. I mean, I, it's different than what it used to be. And we don't have a lot of casualties per capita uh like compared to what you know was going on in world war one like we actually i'm pretty sure killed more of our soldiers uh ourselves in the you know 1990s gulf war than the enemy did we had more uh casualties via friendly fire go america than the enemy were actually able to extract from us and a lot of that's because like our tanks were like nigh invincible to the stuff that the iraqis had and the only thing that could kill our tanks were our tanks so sometimes you would get friendly fire and that's the way that they'd actually penetrate through is by confusion on the battlefield. So you did not have a lot of fatalities, it's like a couple hundred, 145, something like that in Gulf War, but a lot of them, majority of them were friendly fire. So VAs are not like overrun like they were, you know, in the decades after World War One happened because trench warfare, mustard gas, specific things that uh, happened, lower medical care, all of that. But it's still there, and a lot of it's psychological trauma now. Um, I played a American Legion up in uh, Round Rock, Texas, doing yeah. some comedy. Tough gig, tough gig. Um, Bob Schwab Jr. talked about uh, meeting with Mr. Joseph Goebbels when he was a kid. And I, I don't like Klaus Schwab Jr., but uh, he's a source, so I just want to play this clip here. Sure. Hello, Instagram. It is your favorite Ola Jock Klaus Schwab Jr. I remember when I was seven years old, I was making a blood bath with Herr Goebbels. It was okay. It was local blood in Argentina. Paper Boys was his favorite. There was even in the blood bath a little bicycle cling out, cling out, cling out. But uh, he was telling me about making propagandas, making the big lie. And when your sheep don't like your big lie, you tell them again. And then if they don't like it, you tell them again and again until your sheep repeat the big lie who love your lies, love your propagandas. But now we have much better tools. If you do not like our big lies, then we will put them in nanobots. If you don't like our big lies, we will change your DNA to like our big lies. We will put the lies in your food, in your app. Jeez. I just want to read this. This is the definition of propaganda. Information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular political cause, point of view, or conflict. Okay. Um, I don't like war, Damien. That's where, like, we always go, we, we talk for hours around the same Inevitable. subject over and over. I'm about peace and love. I'm about building hospitals, friendship. Yeah, but that's just, it's too idealistic. It's like the difference between it's like, okay, you know, I want a car in every garage in America. And what you're saying is like, I want a Lamborghini in every garage. And it's just not going to fucking happen. And no, I want a sane person who uh, doesn't call the cops when they have uh, tried to get pregnant. Um, well, yeah. that was your, you probably should have a different I don't know what you're talking about. about. I signed an NDA. You, you said this on ABC Nightline. Any contribution I can give, even if it, you know, even if this is just like, you know, one city that gets to be free a week longer, 
as long as we can have an impact and we, we can change some of the lives there, then it's worth it. Are you going to go back if you have a chance? I might. It's a possibility. But, yeah, I mean, I, so within that, to go back to Klaus Schwab, so Klaus Schwab as a person is, so he's what, head of World Economic Forum, right? Yep. In 2021, do you know what his net worth was without looking? No. Fucking $1.1 million. $1.1 million. That's an M, not a B. In his 80s, as an economist, do you think that's a lot of money? Not for a guy like him. But no, I, I, not period. I have a, quite literally, I have a noticeably higher net worth than he did. And at a third his age, it's just, he's just not a significant person. He's not a significant character. He's not a significant source. He's not anything. He's just like, just because you call whatever organization you make the world and insert title there it doesn't mean it means anything and nobody actually gives a shit if you have 1.1 if you had 1.1 billion i'd be like okay some people are going to listen to this guy but if you have 1.1 million in your fucking 80s and you went to harvard you did it wrong like you should have like that's not even a house without a mortgage in california like you are not a successful person if your world is revolving around money and if that is what your job is which is what his is you are pretty unsuccessful. So I don't know what his net worth is now because he wrote a book that you're probably at some point going to source. But prior to that, his net worth was $1.1 million. That's not shit. In, I mean, in the name of what things are and with inflation and everything, $1.1 million isn't what it was in the 1950s. It's just nothing. It's nothing. Where did you get that information? Do You don't think he puts out that fake information? You would want to. So just like Trump, Trump is the one that says that he had like when he was running for president said he had like four and a half billion dollars and he wouldn't release his tax forms, wouldn't release any information like that because you don't want to know why it's probably like 600 million. And that was entirely inheritance. Every single bill, every single <laughs> more or less every business he has taken over personally has ran into the ground. I used to love Trump Taj Mahal Casino down Atlantic City. He took it over, ran it in the ground. It's now a hard rock cafe. So the reason you you would propagandize your net worth if you are somebody when you want other people listen. So if you are saying that you know something about the economy, you will want to show that you have more money. Realtors, successful realtors show up in super expensive cars. It's proven that people will take them more seriously because they have expensive nice shit. And it shows that these people know what they're doing because they make money. And the way they make money is to make you money on selling your house or buying another house or positive economic decisions uh showing up in like a beat to shit like 1999 fiat if you're trying to sell somebody like a four million dollar mansion just not going to really carry the same weight and him having a net worth of like 1.1 million dollars is just like it's just paltry nobody no he's not anybody like so a lot of people think <laughs> that he has some and he has not done anything to dissuade people separately of this to think that his name Schwab has something to do with like the Schwab commercials on trading and selling and securities and all that stuff. He's not that guy. He's not that one. This is just a German guy who has the same last name as another German guy who is far, 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 far more successful and a multi-billionaire. 
So him at like 0.04% the net worth of like <laughs> this other Schwab. So Charles Schwab's doing a little bit better than Klaus Schwab. So nobody takes him seriously. He's some fucking crackpot in his 80s. It's just like not a significant source to cite. And him in like World War II, what is even like the slight relevance of that? Like well, in him and Goebbels, he was seven at the end of World War II. He was born. Well, the, the World Economic Forum used to be run by the, uh, the, I forget his name, but the guy who was the finance minister of Hitler. It was called the European Consor- uh, Economic Consortium. And then Klaus Schwab took this exact organization over, rebranded it as the World Economic Forum. So this was uh, run by a Nazi banker at its. I mean, so. Pretty clean. To say somebody is a Nazi in 1930s Germany just means that they existed in 1930s Germany. Like that. That's it. Like if he's so insignificant, then why why is every finance minister of the European Union going to Davos uh, May 22nd to 26th to listen to a guy who has a million dollars? I don't think so. Why do you think? And by the way, not every single important person is doing this, but why? what is your reasoning behind why you would think that is? The central bankers of the central bankers, like Christine Lagarde, who runs the European Central Bank, uh, the BIS central banker, the central bankers of the central bankers are going to this club. The people with money. Yeah. And why? And why? To just play that. Like, what? what is the... What is the dark Machiavellian masterstroke of this guy who barely cracked into seven figures in his age? Well, we have 90 seconds before we're going to get cut off momentarily. But um, to make it short, to 87. They're trying to own nature. So the, their Ponzi scheme of the cabal, all the central banks owe more than the GDP. So they're trying to quantify nature now, put it in a balance sheet, and then derivative financial. Oil is, but continue. Yeah. Land. Huh? Land. People like owning land is quantifying nature. I mean, but continue. Yeah, but previous places that were seen as uh, sanctuary zones, they're going to quantify the financial record behind nature's processes to inflate their... uh, Balance sheet. Whitney Webb said more fodder for the casino, essentially. These are the worst people to be in charge of this. So um, let's come back after this quick uh, break here. I got to render this next clip. I said to myself, wouldn't it be fantastic if I could own the Twin Towers? We got very, very lucky. The governor of New York, George Pataki, decided one day that maybe it would be good to privatize the ownership of the World Trade Center. So I got a call from the governor's office and they said, would you ever consider owning the World Trade Center? It was very, very good for the family. An obligation to collect the insurance proceeds from the policies. A new governor was just elected, Elliot Spitzer, an old friend who I knew well. I said, Elliot, if you don't help me, I'll never collect from the insurance companies. 
And guess what? He listened and he said, you know what? You're entitled. All right. What is the what is the end goal of the World Economic Forum? You know, what is the end goal? And I think they've been pretty clear is uh, gaining of function, the knowledge of nature's processes, human humans being chiefly. They want to gain of function the population of humans. They want to gain a function the population of strawberries. They want to gain a function and have the knowledge of how many, many baboons shit in a rainforest so that they can calculate the fertilizer production. I think this, this full spectrum dominance. Quantification. Everything. And, uh, you know, I've been over to Germany. I'm going to go again. I'm going to go for the third time in my life uh, in September with my family. And um, um, I'll probably run into Clash Rob Jr. out there. He's always hanging out with Draco Reptilians, but I, I don't want to talk about that. But um, the German people, it's like they have this. Uh, okay, let me just tell you another story. So okay. I was in Oktoberfest with my dad, right? Okay. In 2018. And I just got a you know, I'm looking for a big cookie that says, Ich liebe dich, I love you. Love you. Mm-hmm. my niece. So I'm looking at all these cookies. They say, du bist süß, you are cute. Be my valentine, be my valentine. And uh, all this and that. Like Going into the weird incest kind of range. Continue. Ich mag dich, which is just, I like you, you know. Um, so I go to like the third cookie stall. There's hard-shaped gingerbread cookies with these cute little writings on them. I go to the third cookie stall, go um, like, where are the, I love you cookies. And then, you know what the lady looked at me? She looked me dead in the eyes and she goes, you will not find this cookie in Bavaria. Yeah. Very not German sentiment. They're not that squishy. I go, what are you talking about? And she goes, if my father wants that he love me, you would see this cookie. You will not see this cookie here. I'm like, you know what I mean? They're a different They're not squishy. No, everything is brutal efficiency. Fucking love it. Yeah, Germany's cool country. And when you turn that into, it's like, where's the room for, for love, happiness? No, everything is quantification. Everything is, you know. Monetization. Exactly. And so I think that they have a little uh, chip on their shoulder. There's, there's, well, there's it depends something. on how you are personally qualifying greatness. So if you want to look at like, okay, who, where, where do you find the best I don't know, automobiles in the world? Other than if you're talking about like, you know, like handmade custom, like Italian sports cars, you get a lot of the, the main luxury ones out of Germany. You get like the most reliable this. Like if you pick up something that says made in Germany on it, what is your gut reaction to this, generally speaking? It's going to be expensive, but it's going to last forever. Thank you. Like, they make good stuff. So it depends on what you are objectively or subjectively assigning value. So if you want to, you know, like you know, a hugs and kisses community, you've come to the wrong place. But if you want something that's efficient, well-made, calculated, brilliant people, you know, like working hard 60, 70 hour weeks, then Germany might be the place for you. So... It just it depends on what your subjective assignment of value is. Not a lot of comedians coming out of Germany. It's weird. Probably not. There was that, that one guy, though, looked just like Charlie Chaplin. He was pretty funny, though. I'm trying to think what his name was. Great public speaker. That much I remember. Yeah, he was always really sped up. He was always like real a lot fired of up. Yeah. Had a really cool German Shepherd, too. It's really good. Schmedley Butler said, 
They were made over. They were made to about face, regard murder as the order of the day. Um, did sniper training in the Air Force change you? Were you made over? No. So, so okay, there's a couple things to that. So if you think about it, it's like your ability to shoot something be it, it is like morally neutral. So what that thing is that you're shooting is like a different part of it, but the skill set of actually like being able to put a hole in the paper target, metal target, human target is going to be about the same, right? It's just like your ability to actually do this. So if you instill in people a need to do that or to show them like, this is the reason you're fighting or this is why you're doing it. So this is why like the military will show you films of like, you know, ISIS killing children with chainsaws. And it's like, well, why are they showing you this? Because there's like a brutalizing effect to seeing stuff like that. And also it motivates you to exact justice on the people who did this, right? So, I mean, like, you know, they play uh, clips from 9-11 over and over and over again. So you're going to see that a lot. Well, why? Because you're going to want revenge and it's going to make you pissed off. Pissed off people are willing to act. So did they show you uh, Larry Silverstein at a press conference going, I got twice the insurance. Did they play that? Before you deployed? No, don't believe oh. they did. Oh, I think they left some stuff out. How much was it out of curiosity, if you have the number? What's his insurance claims on two gigantic buildings? In, I know in he, the down payment. He got like a 30-year mortgage. The down payment is something like $5 million. And then he was mortgaging. Million? Million was his down okay. payment. So let's say let's say he bought them for fifty million. He only put five down and then mortgaged the 10%. rest on a thirty-year mortgage. I have like points on that. Just saying. Usually mortgages twenty percent down. So and then he walked away with like two point three billion. It's less than I thought it would be. Okay. There's a very derogatory term for this. I'm not going to use it, but some. Uh, let's just say I've, there's some buildings that burned down in Jersey under mysterious circumstances twice in the same month. There's a very derogatory term for this. I will not use this term. But what would somebody else call it? Jewish lightning. You, um, <laughs> so were you made over? No. No, okay, so World War II. World War II and World War I, because the guy had a pretty long history of conflict. Uh, Smedley Butler, specifically. So for certain things like that, you, you know, you do need psychological conditioning, like, don't you think that would matter? Like if you were, before you go on stage, do you, do you think your ability to perform on stage is better now or it was 2004? Oh, way better now, yeah. Like, a gigantic, like leaps and bounds, not even the same like ballpark, right? Okay, yeah. so psychological conditioning does work, practice and, and conditioning. So I don't even see the issue really of that. And the only thing I can think of, of Smedley Butler's issue with this is that it is involuntary because World War One and World War Two were drafts. So if you're in World War Two, you might not be in World War Two voluntarily, and you're getting changed and molded from you know like a squishy person who buys "I love you" cookies into somebody who is going to pick up a gun and kill someone. So I mean, that is like literally what they are trying to do. They're trying to take some of your empathy away and make you the kind of person who will actually pull a trigger, and a lot of people won't. And a lot of people think they will and they won't. There are a lot of people in the military who, you know, talk this big game about how oh, they're going to go over to the Middle East. You know, they're going to kill all these hajis, you know, and all this other stuff. And, you know, their words, not mine. But and they're going to do all of this. And then when it came down to it, they either froze, you know, flight fighter freeze. And a lot of them froze 
and a lot of them ran and a lot of them just did not perform. They were not the people they thought they were. So what the military's job is, is to make you the person that I suppose you think you are in the scenario that you have put yourself in. Because the military, right now at least, is volunteer only. So if you are part of the U.S. military, you are there by choice. Um, there's some benefits package, though. I wonder if someone like you, and I don't think you disagree with me, you've very much benefited from the American empire, the American military, military establishment. Do you whitewash this organization and, and maybe overlook its faults because you benefit from it? Define whitewash in this context. Well, you and you and the U.S. military seem to be in cahoots. You know, you like each other. I think the military likes you. I think you like the military. They've done a lot of awful things. The U.S. government, um, Tuskegee experiments, the clusterfuck in Vietnam, the clusterfuck in Korea, going to Iraq. Every war, you're going to have a clusterfuck. Again, the the problem with bringing wars to bear is because there is a lot of bad shit that comes from it. And it brings out the worst in people sometimes. And some of that is essentially giving somebody an immense amount of power and not a lot of oversight. So a lot of the do you know the people from our high school who became cops? Uh, A very disproportionate number of them were the drug dealers that were prevailing when we were in high school, like disproportionately, like 70% of the drug dealers became cops. And that's not an exaggeration. And other than that, it was of the ones I know about were people who were bullied mercilessly and didn't get laid until college or after. So like those were the people who went on to become cops. Why? Why do you think that is? It's because like it's a combination of few things. Either A, you had power before and you want to retain it. Uh, You didn't have power and now you want it. And now you're going to artificially uh, have it granted to you, or you're a person who doesn't believe that the rules and laws apply to them. So you get to live outside of it. And I have met, definitely have met good cops. I've met a lot more bad cops that give those good cops a bad name, unfortunately. So you do get a lot of people. It is, it is definitely a polarizing thing. So the military is going to be that to an extreme. So like if you're in a war zone and there's two city blocks that you just took over and pretty much all the men are dead, you're going house to house searching it. And you've been you know, away at war for seven months and you find, you know, uh, an attractive woman in early 20s, like huddled in the corner. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people in that scenario historically have done the wrong thing when they have found themselves in this position. So wars do bring that. And if you put, you know, like crimes and travesties in uh, an ascendant order of how bad things are, if you're already killing people, a lot of people don't really see a difference in the morality of other choices they make. I think that is a wrong thing to think in a wrong direction to go, but that's why wars come with a lot of other unintended consequences. So wars always have a cascade effect. It, like it always affects just so many different things. I mean, like everything of a society is affected by a war when that society is at war. So yeah, there are pros and cons from it. Do I benefit from certain things and do I serve a purpose? Yes and yes. But do I agree with every military action our country has ever taken? Absolutely no, not. But there are a lot of good things that we have done. And there are a lot of bad ones. And then some of that is just falls into like a subjective range and what you think, you know, should be done and what shouldn't. Like you might look at one thing that I thought was a great and wonderful thing that we did, you know, like we 
liberated town or, you know, like fight against ISIS. What do you think about fight against ISIS, northern Iraq, Kurdistan, all that stuff? Thought. Well, I think that the UBS funds ISIS, but. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia directly without even they don't even pretend to not fund ISIS. That was ISIS's number one contributing uh, organization was Saudi Arabia directly. They didn't even pretend that they're not supporting ISIS. And then it was human trafficking. They would just take over villages and steal people and sell them. And then you had some of it was the Clinton Foundation. Foundation. Probably not, Eric. <laughs> very, very, very likely not. Well, Laura, and, um, Laura Silsby. Yeah, they were doing it out of that pizzeria in the the, the basement in uh, Washington D.C. I don't know. Oh, Kong, Ping Pong. That's weird. All the symbols on their walls. Also, Laura Silsby was found caught in Haiti smuggling 33 children after the earthquake. And, you know, and she was working for the Clinton Foundation. Mm -hmm. No, who was? What was her name? Laura Silsby. I'll look it up. Now she works for Amber Alert after being busted out of a Haitian prison by Bill Clinton personally. I want to talk about. Oh, I got to look that up later. OK, yeah, we'll revisit it. But I'm not don't have the information prepared. to. Well, you'll have the video and everything I'm saying is true. You, um, I, I don't like Clash Schwab and I worry about a lot of things that we've been talking about. Number one, the debt. Our, our currency used to be based. This is our phone on call gold standard. On a gold standard. And so they ran out of gold. And so they thought, how do we, how do we, well, maybe we have different sources later, but for a we while. We ran out of gold, but yeah, you, you moved away from something that was more abstract than something that was very concrete, but so that Wall Street can kind of go up and down in this computer algorithmic way. And if everything's tied to gold, maybe you can't make uh, uh, AI robots derivative financial swap uh, with these money-making machines. So let's, they said, yeah, let's, we can steal with these algorithms and these robots if we go off the gold standard, all this financial malfeasance. Let's bump and dump these people. It's all business. Um, so then they started issuing your social security card, but on the back of it is a red number for Wall Street. And that for a while was the know-how of the slaves, uh, the peasants, I mean, the free people of the United States were the collateral backing our currency, our know-how. We have so many doctors, our universities, the know-how, the, you know, props up our own currency, right? Let's say, and then also the petrodollar, the fact that people had to use dollars to buy oil historically has popped up our currency. Versus what now? Well, now you can You're start, bartering for it? Well, you can use other currencies like the ruble or the... Well, yeah, I mean, the dollar is directly converted to one to the other. So you didn't need a dollar. You needed anything that somebody else would buy. Continue. Money is money. Okay. For the longest time, um, well, uh, let me let me play this clip by Klaus Schwab. This is really freaking me out. So you say you only has a million dollars. I say every central okay. banker in the world is going to Davos in, in a week's time. And he said right. this on Charlie uh, Ross. The difference of this fourth uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you. If you take a genetic editing, uh, just as an example, 
it's you who are changed. And of course, this has a big impact on your identity and offers certain kinds of possibilities that have to be careful about. You know, when you began to do, when you began to do that kind of gene editing, some people worry that you are changing what it means to be human. That's the problem. And, uh, it, uh, of course, the new uh, industrial revolution offers us many opportunities, but it raises many forward questions on the ethical, but even legal uh, implications. And we have to be prepared for it. And that's what you want to do in Davos next year. Talk about technology and have the ways it can be deployed, uh, you know, that contribute to growth rather than exacerbate unemployment. How will that implement itself? It's a big question mark because there is a fear that uh, technology, robots, uh, just to take yeah. one. Yeah. You get more activity from machines. Exactly. And it replaces maybe um, the workforce or jobs faster than we can replace them with the new jobs. And not everybody can be a robot polisher and so yeah. on. So there will be new jobs. Not everybody can be the robot polisher. I will change your DNA. Anyway, goodbye for now. Okay. So, what nefarious thing are you pulling from that? Well, I think it's interesting that vaccines used to be about getting a little piece of the virus in your bloodstream so that your immune system can fight it. But mRNA technology changes your RNA to produce the virus naturally. And then no. your body fights that. Continue. I'll let you keep going, but continue. Um, so you say, you know, so this is a big controversy around Dr. Robert Malone. <laughs> yeah, keep going. You didn't know his name two days ago when I brought Yes, him I did. You were like, who's no, that guy? No, we had this conversation. I was and then like, mm-hmm. I said post Malone. Like, I don't actually think Posty was making this. Yes. So Robert Malone did his work in the fucking 1980s. So my analogy then, if you remember, was if you were the guy who made the patent on the turn signal on a Rolls Royce, and then you said you are the father of Rolls Royce, that that is a ridiculous, gross overstatement of your accomplishments, right? That was my actual example. Right. You did say that. Okay. Okay. He's in the room and he's going, this has not been safety tested. Because he did it in the fucking 1980s and that's it. He was a one hit wonder. It's like whatever the fuck band he's not wrote, that old. Like, bouncing off the walls. Like he did his contributions in the 1980s. And do you know what specifically his contribution was? Because this is well known within the scientific community as I am somebody who works at a place that makes this vaccine. Look, this is literally Do you know what he did? This is your Before expertise. You him, what did he do? This is your expertise. I will say my understanding is that okay. he came up with the technology of mRNA changing technology. No, not, I mean, not even, not even. Okay, so please enlighten me. Absolutely. No, and this is interesting. I could send you a link from Nature, which is obviously a pretty good publication, authoritative source. So what, okay, so they were already experimenting with duck cells and other things to make RNA and to do these modifications. But there were problems with the body's receptivity of this RNA. So what you needed to do was it showed that RNA could be accepted into the cell. The way he did it was 
ionization. He had another, essentially what he was doing his thesis on was ionization of cells. I believe it was to give a positive charge to these cells, not a negative charge. So he was ionizing this RNA, which would allow it to be accepted into the cell. That's what, that's what Malone did. So unfortunately, that also comes with, and again, so that, that pushed the ball forward, right? Like he did do something. Like this was a step in the, you know, like the thousand pages of RNA's development into what it currently is. Like he was a paragraph or two. So good for him. Like, and that's the thing where like scientists look at his accomplishments and stuff. And, you know, he's one of a thousand different people who have worked on this over the course of things. And they look at that and be like, okay, you know, like Malone, good for him. However, all he did was do this in the obnoxious part or the unfortunate part with ionizing cells is you get this insane immuno response from your body. Your body actually can recognize that this is foreign material. So yes, this is something that like you normally get, but it's like if somebody hands you money, but those money are ruples, you would look at it and you would just be able to recognize that like, okay, although this is money, this is not something that I'm used to. And your body has this incredible immuno response. So what Carrillo and Weissman years later, like easily a decade later did, probably going to get a Nobel Prize for it, is instead of using ur uridine within the body, they're doing uh, pseudo-uridine, which took away the immuno response of the body so you could have greater a greater capacity for receptivity without the incredible immuno response. And that's what they did. Much, 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 much greater accomplishment. And there were hundreds of people in between point A and point B. So to say that he is the father of it, it's like this was worked on before him. He didn't come up with the idea. He had a con he did something that was contributing. When he was in college, his I believe thesis was about ionizing cells or ionizing RNA, different materials. So you have uh, different degrees of receptivity in your body. Bodies would take it in. So you'd have bioavailability, and that's something that he was working on. And he just said he's like, well, possibly the thing I am studying can be applied to this. They did, and it worked. So like, yeah, he absolutely did something. Smart guy. Uh, and did, and he is a footnote in the development of mRNA vaccines and all of the work that has come with it. So, okay, yes, so it you, but you make it sound ball. like you make it sound like he did a thesis in college where he ionized some RNA matter and then and then rested on his laurels and stared out a window the rest of his life when he's not in like actively continually involved in stuff. So he retired then in college. No, he didn't retire. He just wasn't. He was not a principal player in this. Like he was not on the right. boards. He was not on the, the development team. He did not do jack shit with the actual, any of the vaccines that are currently in use now using RNA technology. He and he can't look not at even medical, he can't look at the literature and go, oh, this hasn't been safety tested yet. Even a German car, you want to have a new German car, they have to crash test it. For and they did. Years. So I mean, this was the years reason it goes on the autobahn. The reason, yes, absolutely. The reason the coronavirus vaccine was able to be released so quickly was because it was being developed for coronavirus one. And then that was what, 2003, something like that. So like this has been in works for quite a while and all they had to do was change something about it. So to use your analogy, this is, you know, you have your Audi R8, you know, with last year's model and all you do is add a body kit to it and it's a little and change out the seats and you you just have to test the seats you have to make sure the body kit doesn't drag you put it around the course and then whatever you were working on before is just as valid now as it was before is this the most effective vaccine in the history of mankind absolutely no no it's not 
Uh, is it pretty good? Yes. Does it give you a greater and advanced immuno response to it, which means you're going to have less of a viral load, which means you're going to be less sick and then therefore less contagious? Yes. So it is not amazing, but it is not bad. I think he just said it wasn't ready and he got canceled. Like he, he you know, did some trans joke or whatever. Uh, he was squashed by the woke mob. This is what uh, Klaus Schwab Jr. spoke to oh, uh, GMO tomatoes and he connected the mRNA to GMO. Hold on, before you do it, before yeah. you do it. Do you know that, and this is, I'm just curious. Do you know what RNA does? Not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot. What do you know what RNA does within your body? What does RNA do? It's the, the building well, blocks of your genetics. No, not even fucking close. Try again. Come um, on. It's a thing that puts You're love shitting in your all heart. over it. You got to know something about it. The thing that puts love in your heart to make a cookie that says I love you. Yeah, it's got, that's closer, to be honest. So what RNA is, is a blueprint. And that blueprint tells your body to make a certain protein. That's it. What the protein now makes, do you know what the protein now makes after you have the vaccine? An amino acid? Yeah. A cytokine so storm? It, not, no. You're just throwing like vocab words out that you've heard from like Spanish mm -hmm. flu. But um, <clears throat> so what your body now makes is the spike protein for coronavirus. So now your body sees this foreign substance, the spike protein, specifically uh, conferred for coronavirus. That's what it makes. So your body's like, okay, we have this. And we now need to make antibodies to this antigen. So we have to have an immuno response to this thing. So the next time we see something like it, we're ready. This is the fucking javelin missiles to the Ukrainians of, of your body. So what you are giving it is forewarning it about uh, this possible invader to come. So it's a little bit more prepared. So you have less of a reaction when you actually get sick. That's it. And so no, kind of like preventative strikes. It's like we we started to a war with Iraq so that it wouldn't start a war with us. That's not why we did that, and it's not even why we said we did it. And I mean, why, we had really horseshit reasons why we said we did it, but that wasn't one of them. Propaganda. Um, it, it's weird. We used to just insert the spike protein matter into your uh, veins to have your immune system fight it. Why? Put the RNA to make the spike protein to fight. Why go back? Cool and new. Yeah. It's not going back. So we used to, yeah, we would put in the, the neutered version of the virus into your body, and then your body would have this reaction. What this is, is a easier vehicle for your body to produce it so that you yourself are making these spike proteins and that you yourself also is reacting to it. And it just allows a more comprehensive immuno response, or so was the theory. And it's about the same. It's but just still, it's not bad. It's just not great. It's and I don't know why people have to be like people. Are, the vaccine from what I've seen is very, very polarizing. Like everyone is either like, oh, fuck you. It's microchips. Or everybody's like, this is the most important scientific breakthrough in the history of mankind. And it's not. It's not either of those things. It is somewhere in the middle, but leaning towards this is awesome of it works. It prevents a lot of death near what 90 something percent of the deaths in all hospitals are people who are unvaccinated. No, that is not a coincidence. 90 percent of people are vaccinated. So the people who are dying are very, very, very disproportionately people who are unvaccinated. Why is that? Because the vaccine does have some positive effect and it does lower the amount of viral matter that is floating through your system. So you have less of an impact and you don't die. Uh, the and the biggest comorbidity to death in this is being fat.
So like, if you actually want to prevent and like help you not dying from this, hit the gym. So if you get vaccinated and hit the gym, this is probably going to bounce right off you. I, I had COVID twice. I didn't even know that I had it the first time because I was completely asymptomatic. The second time I felt like I had a mild cold for about three hours. So I went to sleep, a little restless for the first three hours of sleeping, woke up, felt fine-ish, went for a three mile run, went about my day, uh, didn't really change my habits and felt 100% back to normal within three days. The vaccine was much, much, much worse uh, for me of an immuno reaction right after I had that. I felt like absolute dog shit for about a full 24 hours. So the vaccine for me was much worse than the actual coronavirus itself. But hey, that's mandated to go overseas. If you want to go to the EU, you need to show up with your vax card or you're getting turned away at the door. Hmm. So before you go to Germany, make sure you're vaccinated if you aren't already. This is going to be a hilarious flight home. Techno fascist dictatorship. That's what I like. And, um, you know, how How is it a techno fascist dictatorship? Well, the World Economic Forum doesn't talk a lot about preventing deaths. uh, They probably don't have the money to with Schwab's $1.1 million budget. That's propaganda. Uh, It's not. It's what he declared his net worth as, too. Exactly. Why would you? He's trying to be a man of the people, but he dresses, no, like, not. He dresses like Emperor Palpatine. Palpatine. He's trying to say he's only got one point one million dollars. It's bullshit. No, if you see oh, his Palpatine robe, he is not trying to be a man of the people. Are you fucking kidding me? That's like what? Okay, this is like a guy going on a date with a girl and talking himself up and saying he has a ten-inch dick and showing up and he's like certified Asian. Like, no, it's like it's not what. You actually, this is not putting his best foot forward to say that he has a net worth of 1.1 billion. You want to be Charles Schwab and be like, I have 14.3, and just everybody like here's the deafening act of his member hitting the table. So, no, you are not going to understate how much money you have. You want people to take you seriously economically. Like, that's what Jeffrey Epstein did. It was like, fuck you, listen to me. I have half a billion dollars. And people did signaling. He's signaling his virtue that he's no, a philanthropist. With his he's Palpatine the, robe, he's, he's not going alpha to predator. Walmart with blue jeans and like, a, you know, a Von Dutch t-shirt. Like, no, he's not being a man of the people by any stretch of the imagination. He was trying to justify somebody who's a broke-ass bitch and why nobody's going to listen to him. But, you know, continue. I think it's interesting that every central banker in the world is going over. Uh, Are they, though, Eric? <laughs> this is what his son said about agriculture, and I think it's very it interesting. Is. I want to tell you about making farming because it used to be such an uh, independent farmer to make it. One say, but makes us tomato. And the judge used to say, well, you cannot patent the tomato because it was made from God. And then we said, but if we bribe and kill and bribe and kill and bribe and kill the judges over and over. And then we say, what about now? Can we make the tomato genetically modified. And then they said, okay, because we bought them. And then as soon as we got that glass, oh, they started changing the DNA of the slaves. And now legally, we own everyone. So in chemistry, if you want to patent a uh, uh, molecule, if you want to patent a new uh solution that your pharmaceutical company has created you just got to change what exists and just add something to it just add a little piece to it and now that's a patent i mean some people this works in music the same way 
I mean, Millie, uh, what's his name? Vanilla Ice took some other track. He got sued for this, but he added something to someone else's music and made a garbage white trash music. He got sued later, but sometimes you just take what's there. Pretty bad example, actually, because it didn't work, but continue. He did get sued, yeah. So that's what... Pretty bad example. But I'm saying Elvis... If it had worked... (laughs) Elvis stole a lot of his swagger from the black community in the South that he was raised in, you know? So... He made his own music, but he was trained this way. You know, he just changed what his environment. Anyway, you just change it a little. Made better music. What the fuck? Continue. So if you change the people. I mean, people do that with medications all the time. Like pharmaceutical companies will make like small confirmational differences of different molecules so that they could keep their patent alive a little bit longer. And there's some like decent reasons for that. What do you think ballpark figure? What do you think the average uh, medical patent costs. If you want to make a new medication, what do you think that patent costs you between actually making it, development, uh, all the FDA trials? What do you think? The, the yeah, the research and development and all yes. that. Yeah. What, what's your guess? $370 million. It, off by almost exactly six times. Uh, slightly over $2 billion. $2 billion. So medical patents are good for 20 years, but the, the clock starts at the point at which you originally make it. So by the end of that, you are 12 to 14 years deep on your patent when the thing is actually released to the general public, meaning you have six to eight years to make your $2 billion back with a B, $2 billion back, and then make a profit. So you have six to eight years. Let's say, uh, point of reference, you have eight years. So that's $250 million a year you need to make over then, over $250 million a year, you need to make to break even, correct? Yeah. So if you actually want to make a profit, let's say you need to make $500 million a year. And this is also, you have to absorb the cost of all of the other patents that you tried to make and that were shot down because there's a lot of medical patents that fail somewhere along the way, right? So like, let's say your company had six failures amounting to a billion dollars. And then you had this one success that was $2 billion. You have $3 billion to make back and you need to do it in eight years and make a profit. So now you're needing to charge, make $500 million a year to do it. Do you think that is an expensive process and hard to do? Yes. And especially the more obscure of a disease that you're treating, the less likely you're going to be able to do that and why you have to make it just crushingly expensive to do it. So Lipitor, I think, took like 18 years to actually go through all the trials and stuff. It means they had two years left on their 20-year patent to make back their billions of dollars. I think Lipitor cost like $4 billion. So this was the first time in history, I believe it was under Obama, where they extended a medical patent. And the reason being is the extra time of Lipitor's greater availability would save hundreds or tens of thousands of lives. Tens and tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands more people would live and not die from heart disease because Lipitor is on the market and it wasn't financially impossible for people to afford. So for them to actually make their money back in two years, it was going to be so expensive that very few people were going to be able to actually afford it. So not a lot of people would be on it, so they'd die. So this is one of the signs where they had to actually make an exception to allow greater availability of this drug in order to save tens of thousands of more lives. It's not saving, it's profits. What if they find it's out- It's saving. If you, you can always not take it. Can I speak? What if, they find out, take it. what if they find out that ivermectin, which has been out of patent for 30 years and zinc works way better than their jab, but they got- Ivermectin's fantastic. And I have said ivermectin was fantastic since this began. So Joe Rogan got mountains of shit right for taking ivermectin and i thought it was the funniest thing it was um 
uh, NPR did this report on Joe Rogan, how they were talking about, and Joe Rogan's in his, what, 50s? So they were talking about how, like, Joe Rogan is seemingly healthy and doing okay, even though he's in his 50s, and because he got COVID, and he's unvaccinated, and he's on a cocktail of, like, ivermectin and a couple other things, maybe hydroxychloroquine, you might know. So he was taking that, and ivermectin's like a miracle drug. Like, if you're going to put it in, like, the top 10 most important like that might be in the top 10 most important drugs, like up there with, you know, penicillin and other things like this. Ivermectin is amazing as an anti-parasitic, does a lot of other things. It has a lot of values. You, in order to come from, I think, Nicaragua, Nicaragua to the US, you have to be on Ivermectin to actually gain access to this country because it is so important, especially in the region that these people are originating from to come into this country. So Ivermectin is fantastic. And and yes, it's one of those things that's like ultra cheap. Like, I don't even know how much it actually costs to be on like a, a full course of ivermectin, but it's something like minuscule. And he got mountains of shit for it. But guess what? Joe Rogan was fine. And like he beat COVID and a lot of other people didn't. So, so good for him. And ivermectin is one of those things that works. And it's like, do I think this vaccine works 100%? Absolutely not. Nowhere close. So think of it as like body armor. Like you put on a Kevlar vest, it's going to stop a nine mil. Great. It's going to stop a 45. Awesome. 40 cal. Yes. Five, five, six green tip. No, it's going to go right the fuck through you. So, so it, it does work, but it's, you know, it's a body armor. It's a seatbelt. Like this does protect you. This is something, this is some measure of safety, but it is not, you know, the end all be all. And should you take other things and are there alternative medicines that might also help maybe as much i wouldn't necessarily say ivermectin helps as much i wouldn't in fact say ivermectin helps as much but i do think it helps and if you are completely staunchly against the vaccine fucking take ivermectin and at the very least it's not going to do damage to you and it seems to work in cases that they have studied like actual medical studies that they have done in the united states ivermectin is shown to work so take it so you said well yeah, the patent was going to run out so that Obama did this great thing by extending it because it was about to run out. That's about it could have gone into it being a generic drug and no, then the cost would go down. Yes. And they would have eaten four billion dollars that it took to develop this in the almost double lifespan that it took for all these trials, which disincentivizes corporations of making these things. And that's completely un-American. Unfortunately, shit costs money. And I don't know why people think that healthcare should be should be free. It is the one thing that has like almost objective value. You living has value. So why should you not pay for the ability to live longer? And like, again, you don't have to take Lipitor. If you have heart disease, fucking don't take it. You can die. We give you the freedom to die. You're not allowed. We're not making people take Lipitor at, you know, $2,000 a month. You can just die. You are, you are, you have just the same medications prior to Liptor being released. All the same things are available to you. You haven't lost anything because it came out, but now you have a chance of actually living. I, I personally know people who had heart attacks and were like on death doorstep, started Liptor, they're fucking fine because Liptor is actually that amazing. So should they be not paid for the life changing, life extending drug that is going to save millions of people in the course of the next 20 years absolutely like let them reap the benefits of this brilliant discovery because why who else like who are you going to give this money to like jay-z has a billion i mean who else should profit 
So Jay-Z has a billion dollars from just making sounds with his mouth. Not to say that he isn't a smart man and wasn't able to diversify his portfolio and do other things. But I mean, at the end of the day, like the what he actually did to get the money that founded all of his other things was just from making sounds to other people's music. So if not the pharmaceutical companies, like what is the issue? Because big pharma keeps you alive. And again, if you're not buying, so the one pharma bro, you know, Shirelli, who bought out that one like AIDS patent and then jacked up the price like, I don't know, 14,000% or something ridiculous overnight. Like that's predatory. Absolutely not denying that that's shitty. And I mean, he also got prosecuted and fucked up over it. So, I mean, that is definitely the exception, not the rule. So the companies actually make Lipitor, uh, all of these other drugs, why should they not be, why should they not get to reap the benefits of this? Well, uh, I would, I would be on the side of the patient rather than the pharmaceutical company. And I would want that pill to go generic so that the patient doesn't have to spend $2,000 on his own heart to live. Generic means the company doesn't make money. Correct. Someone makes money. Should, should generic buy, medications cost so much less because vitamin C. Make it. This is vitamin yeah. C. Who invented that? The inventor should keep making a profit. Yes. So they're going to be able to make the profit that any factory can make that can mass produce it. So like, you know, just because so Viagra, like when Viagra first came out, well, it was like $30, $50 a pill or something like that. And now it's like eight to 10. Not that I know, but um, but so within that, the people who actually patented that got to make just ungodly amounts of money for some number of years. Now, is there a medical necessity to Viagra? I would say is there medical necessity to Viagra. Just if Damien Bostian is on a battlefield, he doesn't need Viagra. That's what I know. That is true. Irrelevant, but true. Um, so within that, they got to make their money on it and then it became generic. And now if you want Viagra, it's still going to cost you more than the generic version of it because it's a brand name. And for whatever reason, people still get it, except instead of buying something that is just chemically identical to it, but doesn't have the same name and same brand into it. But so you your profit margins went down from let's say fifty dollars a pill to like ten dollars a pill and actually what you're profiting out of that's let's just say eight so your profit margins dropped just dramatically like you know you're at like 10 15 20 percent of how much you used to make per pill after you made a generic so why should the every company or every country who is able to mass produce these pills get to make generic Lipitor when they didn't have to do the legwork to develop it that disincentivizes companies that actually go through the arduous 12, 14, in this case, like 18 year process to make these patents. They're not going to do it anymore because there's no money. In it. Right now they're going to, because in one generation, you can make something that is life changing and world changing. And yeah, you also get to make billions of dollars off of it. And why should you not? Why shouldn't you? Like what has value? Like, okay, you know, Dave Chappelle, my opinion, best comedian alive right now like has net worth of hundreds of millions of dollars, 100 million, something like that. He's ridiculously rich. Steve Martin has, uh, uh, you know, old comedian has net worth of like $150 million. Well, he's rich because he makes people happy. These companies are rich because they make people alive. And that pretty hard to debate is even more important. So why should that not make them rich? It's the well, weirdest argument that people don't want to pay for the thing that actually has value and everything else is subjective. I always see that the average American gets screwed over and bankrupt, but the pharmaceutical uh, industrial complex can't take a bath on Lipitor when their patent runs out. It, let's say some guy's working at a baseball stadium 
and it closes for two years for COVID, but his mortgage is still due every month. Then he gets- Well, our ridiculous country gave him $600 extra a week over what he was actually making. So uh, sadly, we we overcorrected that problem. So he's fine. Yeah, he's got all sorts of problems. I hear he just uh, adopted a dog with cancer and two legs, but he's, legs. he's trying to heal himself. Age. He's trying to heal himself with that. He's he got a, his own house isn't in order. My point is the average American always, they'll, they'll take your house. They'll bankrupt you. They'll go, oh, you can't afford to live here. The cops show up, drag a poor American out of his own house. But they, they have to continue to make more and more profits on Lipitor. When if it went generic, then they, they wouldn't make money on it. And they would lose billions of dollars. And then the I, thought, wouldn't be I, thought the incentive, I thought the incentive was that people live. So if no, the incentive is not to make people live. They're a business. Their business is making money. Like your shareholders probably would have an issue if you were trying to. It's like when Tony Stark said he was going to stop making weapons. Like, no, that doesn't work for you. Like, if this is what you do, you need to keep doing it if you want to have a sustainable business model. And again, if you don't make money on this, if this isn't profitable, people will stop doing it. Like if you made fucking six dollars an hour at a strip club instead of 60, people would stop degrading themselves for money. But but since it doesn't, uh, you can actually, this is a sustainable business model and that will work. So like it, from the people I know who have done this, this is pretty soul crushing, but your cost benefit of you make a shit ton of money for like little bits of your soul every day, uh, that is worth it. But if you drop that down and really lower the cost benefit, people would stop doing it. So if you made Lipitor less lucrative, then the company wouldn't have invented it. 100,000 people would have died. And then who gives a shit how much it costs if it's not existing? I think you're just looking for love in all the wrong places. That's what I got from that story. No. So, I mean, it, it just makes sense where it's like, yeah, I understand people want to be like, oh, you know, you know, you want stuff to be cheap and you want your loved ones to have this. And it's like, no, but shit costs money. Like it costs somebody money. Why would it not be the person who benefits from it? So if, but then, if you are taking Lipitor, you are the one benefiting from it. So you should be the one who's having to pay for it. I, right. Sure. Well, I just, if the goal is a healthy population, sometimes that is at odds with profits of, of pharmaceutical companies. How is that? Because if, if they don't make money, they don't make these drugs, you die. That's it. Period. That's why this system works. There's an incentive for them to do it. So they do the work, they make the drugs, and then you get to live. You don't have to take it. You can just fucking die. Like if you have heart disease and Lipitor would save you, you don't have to give the money to the man. You don't have to support big pharma. You could just fucking die. Like you have all the freedom in the world to do that. You don't have to benefit from all of their 18 years of hard works and tens of thousands of scientists. You can just die. They're fine with that. But if you don't want to die and you want to take their life-saving medication, you have to pay for it, which makes sense. Not everyone can be as a robot polisher. Uh the right-hand man of Klaus Schwab is a guy called Yuval Noah Harari, and he said this, talking about useless eaters with the right to die. F, work. I hope you can edit this. Here it comes. Here it comes. And when we look back in history, people constantly compare the threat of automation and job loss in the 21st century to what happened in the 20th century. In the 20th century, you saw automation in agriculture. So lots of unemployed farm workers moved to working in industry. 
And then when automation reached the industry, uh, they moved to working as cashiers at Walmart. But in those cases, what happened was that people lost low-skilled jobs and transferred to other low-skilled jobs. Moving from being an agricultural worker to a, working in some car factory in Detroit, you moved from one low-skilled job to another low-skilled job. When you lost your job at the Detroit car factory and got a new job as a cashier at Walmart, again, you moved from a low-skilled job to a low-skilled job. But the next stage, if, what, if, if, if the next stage means I'm losing my job at 45 as a cashier at Walmart, and now there is an opening as a software engineer at Google designing virtual worlds, this is going to be much more difficult than moving from the car factory to the to Walmart. And it's very likely that even if there are new jobs, most of the unemployed masses will not be able to make the transition. It's also a big question about, about young people that nobody really knows what the job market would be like in 20 or 30 years, really the first time in history, and nobody has any idea what kind of jobs and what kind of skills people will need in 30 years, which yeah. means that we have absolutely no idea what to teach children at school. Most of what they learn is going to be irrelevant to the requirements of the job market and of society in 2050. What to teach them instead, we just don't know. And the worst problem, of course, is not in the developed countries, but in the developing countries. If you think about a country like, I don't know, Sweden, uh, which now gets a lot of attention in, in the US. So I'm not so worried about the Swedes. I mean, even if, even if millions of jobs are lost in Sweden, I, I, I think that because of the tradition of the welfare state and so forth, the Swedish government will raise taxes on the big companies and universal basic income or something like that. The Swedes will be okay, I think. The really big question is what will happen to the Nigerians, to the Bangladeshi, to the Brazilians. If millions of textile workers in Bangladesh lose their jobs because of automation, what will they do? When we are not teaching the children of Bangladesh today to be software engineers, what will they do in 20 or 30 years? And do you really think that, I don't know, the US government will raise taxes on Google and Amazon in California and use that to pay basic income to the unemployed Bangladeshi? If you believe that, you can just as well believe that Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny will come and take care of the Bangladesh. Because I don't think this is a realistic uh, solution. Nobody knows what the solution is. So we may be facing in the 21st century a completely new kind of inequality, which we have never seen before in human history. On the one hand, the emergence of a new upgraded elite of superhumans enhanced by bioengineering and brain-computer interfaces and things like that. And on the other hand, a new massive useless class, a class that has no military or economic usefulness and therefore also no political power. What are we going to do with all these useless people? They never actually said useless eater, just for the record. <laughs> he also is very much into 
the human is a hackable animal. And then when the humans who can afford it become a breakaway civilization because they, they have AI. You've seen involved. Elysium. Have you seen the movie Elysium? No. Matt Damon? Oh, fuck, man. Really? Okay, it's Blomkamp movie. It was very good. But essentially, it is like 90% of the world is unemployed and a piece of shit. And then like 1% or point something percent of the world is just ultra rich. And it's just like the extreme divergence uh, and disappearance of the middle class. Which is probably true. But I mean, nothing he said is wrong. It's just like, okay, um, if you are a hyper-intelligent person, you if you if you used to work at Google, you could instead change that job to working at Apple or you could work at Amazon or you could work somewhere else. But if you're, you have an IQ of 81, you don't have a lot of blossoming options. And the, the hilarious thing that happened with the, you know, the huge push to raise, raise the minimum wage from, you know, like $9, $15 in some places, what did corporations do? They automated a lot of those jobs because at $9 an hour, they can afford to have five people working a shift at McDonald's, but at $15 an hour, they can't. So now they have two people and then they have a bunch of kiosks. So fuck you to the, the middle, uh, to the, the minimum wage workers because you just price yourself out of the market. So congratulations on that. And- I, I don't know. I'm naive. I thought the pharmaceutical companies were oh. about healthy people. I no, why the fuck do you think for- they're a business? It's not a charity, Eric. You I need thought- them to be a business. Where do 90%, literally 90% of life-changing medications come out of? What country? The U.S. But they have a, oh, why do you think that is? Because they, they have, have CNN this society. propaganda all the time. Because you have a society that actually allows this shit to happen. If Again, you don't have to take the medication. You could fucking die. Or you could be more obese. Or you could be all of these other things that these medications, not you specifically. You, you're very fit. Um, all of these little things and conditions that this, yeah, you're looking good. Um, <clears throat> that a treatment can just do that. So, no, big pharma is not the problem, the, the solution. And because they are making money means that they're successful, meaning they're successful because you're still alive. And if you die, they stop making money. So it is in their best interest to keep you alive, but that they don't have to be doing it for altruistic reasons. And also it doesn't matter why they're doing it as long as they're doing it. And yes, they should make money and you need brilliant people to do these jobs like me. And you need brilliant people to do them and you need to pay those people a lot or they're going to do something else. So I'm either going to make missiles for Northrop Grumman or I'm going to make vaccines for another company. And Whichever one pays me more, I'm going to do, which is true of like 90% of the workforce. Most people don't give a shit what they're actually doing as long as they're making money and it's a job they can do and people with people they can stand. Maybe it's the liberal artist in me. Sometimes I pull out and I look at my actions and go, what has the best positive impact on society? No, you don't. I mean, you really probably do. don't. And 90% of 90, okay, then you're in like rarefied air of the people who actually do that, if you actually do that. Most people just don't give a shit. Like, as long as you're not actively doing something bad, you just want, at the end of the day, you just want like a cool, dry place to lay your bones and just sit and sleep it off and turn on music or go bang a local or do something. But you, like most people don't actually care about like the, the moral subjectiveness of their day-to-day actions. I don't know. Maybe you're projecting a lot. Maybe, uh, maybe not the Germans, but a lot of people, maybe the Brazilians know a lot about love. That's what I heard. Um, they, this lady called Catherine Austin Fitz. Uh, oh, wait, before I get into Catherine Austin Fitz, 
do you hear rumblings in the military about the desire to have the Ubermensch like a super soldier? And if, you know, you do sign like that you're the property of the U.S. for time when you're in the military. Not exactly, but sort of close. Continue. You know what I'm saying? So can they alter, can you, can they alter you to be super soldier? You could volunteer. If they had a program. Okay. A couple things. Hey, if they actually had that program, me and like probably you and 99% of other people would fucking jump at that. Like, even if they're like, this might shave 10 years off, like the end of your life, be like, fine. Like, I don't need to retire to Boca Raton. Like, just give me like Chris Evans body for the next 30 years and we'll call it even. So no, A, it is not, unfortunately, an option as far as I have seen. But if it were, most people would take it. And that's just most people anywhere, like people off the street, people not even in the military. You, Most people would take the opportunity to have that. Because most people are just going to die in mediocrity, and that the chance of greatness is worth the risk. Hmm. I'm a big decentralized power kind of guy. I like that America has 50 states because it keeps the tyranny of Washington, D.C. off the states. If they, for example, you know, abortion's been in the thing, I think it, the best solution is every state decides most things. Like if you want to I mean, go get an abortion, be. you got to go across the border where it's legal or whatever. Well, unfortunately, Texas is trying to make it illegal. Even if you go, if you're a Texas resident, if you go to another state, you could still be charged with it as like basically medical tourism. Like you could be, if you bang some 12 year old in Angola, you could still be charged here for banging 12 year old because it is federally illegal here for you to do that. And it's sexual tourism. Even if you traveled to do it, they're essentially trying to extend that within abortion within the United States. And it's also, they're trying to make it first degree uh, premeditated murder of a child, which is punishable by death. Yeah, and they're also so talking about. The, and then the weirdos are uh, the, on the left are talking about post-birth uh, abortions and stuff. No, like they're that. not. Or organ. No, they're fucking not. Okay. No, they're just not. No, <laughs> like I mean, like maybe you could find a person who is saying this post-abortion. Like I mean, a that's not even what the definition of abortion is. Like there's a expiration date on what that term means. Like murder isn't a form of abortion. If I kill a 23 year old, this is not aborting them. But like, but if like, you in Texas, if you walk in and your wife and she's cheating on you, you can shoot everybody dead. So well, that used to be true. That's been shot down. Pun intended. Lately, there have been crime of passion instances that were not held up just saying i did live in texas too that did not like that does not always hold up you can't just like go on a fucking like crime and passion killing spree because that happened Wrong. so let's say let's say <laughs> oh god oh you had to drive your wife from uh, the oklahoma border back into texas to, anyway i'm just joking um catherine so i'm i'm big on decentralization i want every country in europe to have its own currency to keep the central bankers off our back. I want a more robust state government to keep the feds off my back. That's my personal politics. Um, Catherine Austin Fitz agrees with me and she said this. Many of the health restrictions are all about engineering that central, that central control. This is the source of inequality. This is where inequality is coming from. The wise control in a way that's very dis- destructive of the independent producers. So this is a, a, it's a huge concentration of power and wealth. And what I tell everybody is be not afraid. There is no reason not to fight to the death here because if you look at where they're going, death is not the worst thing that can happen. 
they've engineered the response to the healthcare crisis of the COVID-19 agenda to destroy the independent producer and to centralize control. Well, you could find terms within the example that you've constructed. Well, I found it interesting that you could still go to like Applebee's, but all the French restaurants uh, were closing during that. All the like, super, what the fuck are you talking about? That did not happen. Like super indie restaurants had all these restrictions, but then you could get like food delivered. I don't know. I just saw like, but the- that didn't happen. Like, yeah, you might have a point if that existed, but it didn't. Like they had the same health restrictions, like went down, like blanketed over like this industry like that that didn't happen like i literally went to a french restaurant in when i visited uh north jersey that was open and like at the exact same time that other places were open in low capacity and it was pickup only so like okay fine maybe this super specific restaurant that doesn't really do takeout had to close because they have a dine-in only experience and that allows you to have this as an example, whereas Applebee's will let you take it and go. So th- what people would say to that is these independent restaurants were closed and these chain ones were open, when in reality, it was because one offered a service that the other one did not. There's a reason why uh, the UFC nowadays is only going to Texas and Florida back and forth and then Vegas because uh, they're allowing everybody Laws to Laws and taxes. In. Yeah. Taxes. And a lot of it's taxes. I mean, like... You could go to convention centers and stuff in Jersey and Delaware and Maryland and Pennsylvania now too. It's taxes. The reason all of that shit used used to a lot of that was in California and now it's in Texas. Tax breaks. It's just money. It's just I mean, the answer to like ninety percent of like these big questions, if you look at it, is it just is money. Yeah. So I, mean, I look it, at that's the central bank. That is just money. So well, I look at the that's record. human nature, Eric. Like that's always been the case. Like, do you think the guy up in the castle was like paying his serfs like the fair, like prevailing wage? No, like this will this is the history of humanity. You're always going to get the people at top making more than the people at the bottom. It's just the nature of it. And some of it is just if you're incredibly stupid and you know you are like straddling like the retarded line, then the jobs that are available to you are not going to be as great as, you know, the Steve Jobses of the world or people who are brilliant, people who can actually change the world. And unfortunately, that's just the way it's going to go. Like, not every horse is going to win the Kentucky Derby. Sorry, that's just nature. So within that, when, you know, the the one guy was talking about how you're going to have some of these jobs just disappear, that's absolutely true. You're going to, if, if you could train a monkey or a simple computer to perform your job, your job is not all that important. And therefore, somebody is going to make a machine that could do it faster and cheaper and more efficiently than you can. And then you don't have that job anymore. So like, yeah, you went from your your lateral move, $15 an hour door greeter job to working in McDonald's, to working somewhere else, to then being unemployed. And like, that's not society's fault. You didn't prepare or invest in your own future. And now you don't have a job because you don't have any skills. You're not a useful person. Like corporations don't give a shit about you as a person. They care about what you can produce. And if what you can produce is absolutely jack shit, then they don't care about you. So is the state versus the corporation? Does the state have a responsibility to prop up these useless people? What should we do with them? Should we massively depopulate the planet down to 2 billion? Like, uh, like that is the question and nobody has a good Yuval Nor Harari has said should be the case. Klaus Schwab also is 
massively into don't have a good answer for that because i don't know what you do when you have massive overpopulation and people are just breathing too goddamn much so hey maybe roe v wade is onto something but but within that what do you do when you have too many people and that's just been a question for a long long time like we have reached and then exceeded the carry capacity of planet earth and unfortunately even through all the genetic engineering that you shit on with like monsanto and everything else that is allowing there to be more food that is grown in more places that are more resilient to pests and parasites and therefore we have more food so we can support more people and this keeps circling so you get like the super brilliant people that you hate so much making their billions of dollars that allow there to be tens and hundreds of millions more people every single year and they're allowing this to happen and this cycle continues and funnily enough those stupid people who are objecting to the rich people are the ones that are alive only because these rich people exist in the first place so it's a hilarious cycle of being really unappreciative but then get super rich off of it I'm so appreciative of all the glyphosate I consume all the time. I'm very, very appreciative. That's good. Happy for you. He owns the patent of such a metro. Or now we will. Uh, all right. What a, no, but what I mean, fun. it just comes down to like skill sets. Like if you are a really good programmer, you have job security, right? Like if you could just code Anaconda, like the best of them, like you're going to have a job. You're going to have a six figure solid job, right? You're yeah. going to. And like you have job security. Okay, if you can't do that and like, you know, you show up late, you get drunk every Tuesday and all this other stuff for work, are you going to have much job security? No, and you don't fucking deserve it. So like it, a lot of it, what I have found in life is most of the absolute best and the absolute worst things that befall us are entirely our fault. Most stuff and personal responsibility is something very few people are able to take. Most of the really good stuff is going to be your fault. It's going to be hard work and, you know, years and years and years. You have a master's, I'm pretty sure. Like years and years and years of education and uh, trying really hard and like, hey, I can hit somebody from over a mile away with a rifle. Very few people can do that. And then therefore, this is a skill set that is marketable. Yeah, um, and I, I can, uh, you know. Make jokes from 20 feet away. <laughs> navigate, uh, you know, this comedy scene to take girls from 6th Street to break my uh, Ikea mattress to then have to go, you know, sustainably- Get Swedish get meatballs arms. and make her even fatter, which it makes it even more difficult for you to have another mattress that can actually support her like gargantuan weight. Yes, it's just the math of it. And these were made in Sweden, Ikea mattresses. Oh, they're very svelte people, you know? I, they are, yeah. Well, but you know, they need to make it not perfect because otherwise you'll just never have to buy a new one. So, but yes, so within that, and then the other thing where I know you mentioned this at some point, but it got lost in shuffle where, you know, the, the COVID vaccine is like changing who we are, right? And like how this is changing like the building blocks of who we are. The building blocks of who we are is DNA. DNA is very different from RNA. I understand why people can be confusing the two, but your, your DNA, this is not changing your DNA. This is not changing the building blocks of who you are. You know, none of your 46 chromosomes would be infected by this. So DNA is in the cell nucleus and RNA cannot get into it. The thing's encapsulated. They are separate things. So your RNA is doing something a little bit differently than your DNA and your RNA is just shitting out the blueprints of these different proteins and your DNA is who you are and who replicates to make more and more and more of you. And as that shreds over time, you age and fall apart. But this RNA vaccine is not changing any of that. And I would say a lot of the people who are perpetuating these conspiracies actually are smart enough to know what they're peddling is bullshit and lies but it's also sensational enough and the average person is dumb enough that they're not going to look into it or figure it out it's the same thing with 9-11 and thinking that wahhabis are the same as sunnis or the same as shiites 
So people are just too fucking stupid to actually know the difference between it and rich and powerful people can prey on the ignorance of these uneducated masses. And that's just how it's always been. Rich, I mean, that's the basis of religion. People. Like this is the basis of religion is just exploiting how dumb most people are. Sorry to say if you're a religious person, but like that is the power struggle of what religion is and how you can control people through just like fear and ignorance. Religion, hmm. the state cult. Smedley Butler said, boys with a normal viewpoint were taken out of the fields and offices and factories and classrooms and put into the ranks. They were remolded. Anyway, my favorite Boy Scout in the world, Dave Boston. Uh, what's next for you? Any uh, any plugs that you want to say? Any uh... No plugs, just working hard in the lab of looking at the, uh, the global military complex and seeing where I could profit. I mean, make a difference next. <laughs> Um, I'm going to be in Jersey doing shows in September at the Comedy Dojo in Morse Plains. See you in uh, September then, buddy. Yeah, you'll be uh, in Fuck Jersey. yes, of course. I will support it. Lovely. Uh, Clem yeah, Trump cool. Jr. will appear at Austin City Council meeting Thursday, June 16th at noon in Austin Man. City Hall. So. Making the trip from Germany, huh? Well, he has a UFO. Uh, and oh. so he goes from the Thule Air Base in Greenland with Sir Case the director. Do you go through the Hollow Earth or over there? I, I mean, uh, he's mentioned, he's said that. that You got to dodge Kong, though. And sometimes that can be tough, especially with the axe now. But uh, yeah. yeah I, he just says that the North and South Pole are connected. And I don't know. I, I don't have the. He says that he'll tell me more, but that degree. Uh, Security clearances work like this. It goes top secret, super top secret, kill your family, top secret, Draco reptilians give, get, uh, give you technology for hand jobs. So that's the order of. It's really all about the hand jobs at the end of it. You know, and that's what they're talking about in the Southern District of New York with Ghislaine Maxwell, keeping the I'm architects sure exactly and engineers that. out. Um, anyway, go to ericcollarbach.com for uh, news. Oh, I have a sponsor, ACBD Remedy. Go to acbdremedy.com. Use promo code Eric for 20% off your order. Can I get vitamin C from there? Uh, no. Oh. No, you can't. I thought it was that. Just well, what is it? Cannabis <laughs> oil. Uh, oh, well, then, fuck. I guess I shouldn't get that because, you know, drugs and I also get blood tests. Good, good for sleepy times. Um, one of my best friends in the world, We all we do is argue, but I, I have, you know, if I had a big chocolate German cookie, it would say, I love you, brother. Ah, oh, buddy. All right. I can't wait to see you in September. It's been too long. All right, brother. Talk to you all later. Right, have a good this night, man. Highway Diary, episode 345 with David Boston. Bye. Been a pleasure. Good night. I said to myself, wouldn't it be fantastic if I could own the Twin Towers? We got very, very lucky. The governor of New York, George Pataki, decided one day that maybe it would be good to privatize the ownership of the World Trade Center. So I got a call from the governor's office and they said, would you ever consider owning the World Trade Center? was very, very good for the family. And I had an obligation to collect the insurance proceeds from the policies. A new governor was just elected, Elliot Spitzer, an old friend who I knew well. And I said, Elliot, if you don't help me, I'll never collect from the insurance companies. 
And guess what? He listened and he said, you know what? You're entitled. <laughs>